Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to episode 192 of the BJJ Brick Podcast. My name is Byron. I'm here with my buddy Gary, and we have a great show. We have a return guest, a fan favorite, Roly Delgado, for the interview this week. Gary, what's up, my man? Nothing. I'm just chilling, illing, and getting top billing. How about you? <laughs> wow, I'm impressed by that. One thing that we have going for us is our email list, and we'd like to get you on there. And basically, we send out an email once a week, uh, having all the show notes and all the details behind this episode every week emailed to you. Uh, go to bjbrick.com or our Facebook page. You type in your name and your email address, and we'll send you the show notes every week. And it's pretty simple. We haven't really done much else with it other than send out the show notes and just remind you, hey, the show's out, and we'd like you to go check it out. But, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing with our email list. They always say email list is a big, is an important thing that to have for a website or an Internet business. And uh, we really haven't used ours to the full extent that we could, but uh, we're getting one together, and we'd like you to be on that list. Yeah, Byron was thinking about sending out some, uh, um, you know, pictures of himself in, in compromising positions, <laughs> oh. you know, somewhere down the road. But, yeah, uh, like on sure bottom of mount yet. and yeah. 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 side control, so, Cosmic yeah. Tommy. So that's something you can look forward to in the future maybe. Um, but hey, speaking of Byron, uh, Byron has an audio book, uh, your first year in BJJ, uh, two and a half hours of content, and it's helping you get through that first year of jiu-jitsu, which uh, is, a, is a tough year. Um, a lot of times people don't really know what to expect or you know how to pick the right school or, or they may even be nervous about you know entering a competition or if it's too early to enter a competition and and uh you know this audiobook like i said it's two and a half hours it covers all those topics plus many many more um it's really going to help you out in that first year uh we have a link to it on our show notes and the best part is byron it's only eleven dollars 99 cents so definitely check it out um the proceeds from this audiobook go to uh, this show and and go to support this show and keep this brick afloat yeah, if we move the decimal place over, it'd be a hundred and nineteen dollars and ninety cents. And uh, so don't be, make that. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be a little more expensive. But uh, so for only eleven ninety nine, it's a it's a really good deal. Yeah, we're really good with decimal points. <laughs> well, Gary's pretty good at that uh, sort of thing. Yeah, I'm good at something at least. Also, speaking of decimal points and and moving, uh, you know, punctuation around, Gary has a quote of the week for us. Yep, this quote is by a, a dude named Anonymous. Uh, I guess he's must be a singer because a lot of times they only have one name. Um, but the quote this week, Our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time you fall. Once again, our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time you fall. And yeah, that definitely, you know, hits it, you know, right on the nail. Um Hits the nail right on the head. <laughs> it's it's it right on the nail. Uh, I guess I'm not good at quotes. <laughs> oh, okay. You nailed that one. Yeah, definitely uh, nailed it. Yep. Well, I don't want to hammer this quote too much, but uh, it it is it's one of those quotes that's similar to the you know fall down six get up seven uh, type of quotes that it it's not fun when you fall and you know fall or you get taken Much down or knee. body slammed yeah. or whatever happens to you but getting up and so obviously it could be in anything any struggle in life it's not 
that you don't avoid those struggles and have you know smooth sailing, but it's how many times and, and what you're able to do once you do get up that is really an amazing thing. And uh, I, I would say we learn from making mistakes, and, and I guess we could call call a fall a mistake. You know, it, it's like a, we may not have got it right. We, we fell. Um, but that's the way we're going to learn. We need to make mistakes. Um, we're going to make mistakes. If we have a great attitude, we're going to get right back up, and we're going to learn from that fall, and we're going to uh, – attack it again and uh, hopefully uh, we won't make the same mistake and fall again Um, but you know we are going to fall we're going to fall a lot a lot of times in our career in everything we do in jiu-jitsu in parenting in our in our job Uh, byron falls a lot just riding his bike he's not very good at that but he keeps getting back up and the key is get back up attack you know whatever's in front of you with the you know zest and and go at it full force but uh we need to learn every time we fall don't just fall think about you know what happened uh how can i get better at this and uh you know get right back up and and get right on the horse yeah well said gary i think jujitsu is uh nice in the fact that it makes us fall if you're starting jujitsu uh, you're going to be tapping out on a regular basis, and that's equivalent to falling or having a little failure. And if you can't handle that, you're you're going to be gone. But hopefully, most people like, oh yeah, I got tapped, big deal. Let's do it again. And and those little mini falls that aren't a big deal. I mean, we're just trained in here. It's not that to get tapped out, you shouldn't be upset or disappointing yourself by uh, you know getting tapped. It's just part of the training process. It's like, you know, when you're watching a child learn to walk and they fall, you don't like scold them or laugh at them and embarrass them. No, it's just part of learning how to walk. You have to fall. It's part of learning how to jujitsu. You're going to get tapped out. Nobody expects you to be good at jujitsu when you walk in the door, regardless of what you look like or how strong or, or big and tough you are. You're not going to be good at jujitsu your first day. You're going to fall. And so I think that. As a tool for the rest of our lives, Jiu-Jitsu is constantly showing us that we can get back up and do better after the fall. Yeah, you know, uh, I was having a talk with uh, a local black belt about this the other day, uh, that no matter what I, what challenge or what task or what project I have that I have to do at work, I look at it that it's going to definitely be easier than what has happened to me on the times I've been on the mat. And, uh, you know, if I'm on the mat with Byron and, you know, he's got really tough side pressure and, and I'm just getting grinded into the mat and uh, having a tough time getting out, I'm getting cross-faced, I'm getting my neck twisted. I, I guess jiu-jitsu has just given given me that power that I know I can do anything I put my mind to. And and I don't think I used to be like that before jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu has given me a confidence, not just on the mat, but in real life. And, you know, sometimes I try to think, is that confidence – come with age you know as i've gotten older or is it due to jujitsu and and you know i believe a part of it is age i I think i get smarter as i get older i've i've fell down more times but i think like you said jujitsu is a is a sport that's gonna make us fall that's gonna put us in some bad positions gonna make us very very uncomfortable and uh we get used to being uncomfortable and finding our way out of that position and uh i just really think it has taught me a lot in life uh you know i'm gonna fall but I'm going to get right back up. I'm going to learn from it, and I'm going to get better at it. And Gary's one cool, confident cat. But uh, Gary, here's a little uh, thing you're saying. Does it come with age or jiu-jitsu or both? Uh, 
people who are highly confident often have like real confident, not the not the fake confident that they put on the air of. Like really, this person is a confident person. They're not faking it. They, they really have confidence in themselves. Uh, a lot of times, that person doesn't have a very good memory. So also with your age, you're going to start dropping that memory. I know you're into that category already as far as your aging process. But the the less that you remember how things went poorly, the less that you remember of your mistakes, the more confident you get. It's a natural cycle, Gary. So yes, with your age and your fading memory that we're all witnessing today, uh, yeah, you're going to become more and more confident. And this is great to have uh, that happen to you. Yeah, hey, Dad. How are you doing today? <laughs> Hello, Dad? Oh, I I thought I was on the phone. Oh, sorry, Byron. I I forgot what I was doing. I thought I was calling my dad. Yep. But you are very very confident, aren't you, Gary? Huh? You say something? (laughs) And bad hearing. (laughs) Gary, are you you not the best-looking guy, uh, adult male in your whole household? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, You know, I've got to go against a dog and and an eight-year-old. So uh, I think I I think I've beat the eight year old out. Yeah, well, if in the adult category, but that is a good looking dog you have as well. So uh, at least second place. Okay. <laughs> but uh, that being said, uh, the quote again that we kind of uh, got away from. <laughs> well, uh, we didn't get away from the quote, Byron. We just talked about it. We because really, all we keep talking about is falling and getting back up. So yeah. you know, I think you kind of forgot what we were talking about. That's true. And I remember yep. when you tried to do the analogy of hitting the nail on the head, uh, hitting the nail with the hammer, or I don't know what you said. My memory's bad See, too, you Gary. forgot. Or you already <laughs> forgot. So sometimes I don't think it's just due to age. I think it's getting choked out too can can hurt you there. So I've seen that happen with you. Yeah, I've, yeah, that's true. I've been choked out, and uh, it can't be. It can't be good for the brain. I don't no, know if it's really that all. bad, but it, it's not. It's not like a vitamin injection right to the to the smart area, smart no, muscle. Not at all. Yep. So, all right. Well, that was a fun quote to talk about and watch us uh, kind of spin out of control as yep. usual. And, and uh, we'd like to thank <laughs> Mr. or Mrs. Mrs. Anonymous who sent that in. Yep. Great as always. Those anonymous quotes. I'd like to one day invent a, uh, you know, I don't really want to do this, uh, get a computer virus that replaces all the words anonymous with something else, some other name, and then you would instantly have the name of some famous person that had said all these quotes, and it would be like, it'd be terrible, but it'd be kind of a funny prank. Oh, yeah. I think about that, Carrie. All I right. Like <laughs> Let's get on with this week's interview. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. I tapped out Robin Hood with a bow and arrow choke. The impressive thing is that Robin Hood didn't even have a gi. Just... Just his tights. The Navy has studied my rib cage. They have made many advances to submarine technology, learning how to easily withstand great pressure. According to superstition, stand in front of a mirror and say my name three times, you will start coughing, just like after a tight joke. I don't always listen to podcasts. When I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends.
All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring back Roley Delgado. Roley, welcome back to the VJJ Break podcast. Yeah, happy to be here, Byron. Thanks for having me, bud. Yeah, it's been way too long. I looked back and it was episode 68 and we're in the 190s now. And uh, we should have had you on uh, a while back just to kind of refresh our conversation with you and, and see what's going on. And I it, and I really enjoyed talking to you the first time. Since then, we've uh, I think I've attended at least two seminars and actually uh, got down to your gym to train with you a little bit there as well. So uh, we've definitely uh, had more interaction since the first time when we hadn't even met. Yeah, for sure, man. I uh, and I love that about jujitsu and uh, just networking in general, you know. Um, so I was really, really excited to have you come by the gym, and of course, I appreciate your support when uh, I'm coming through town doing seminars. So it's uh, awesome all the way around. Really, if somebody hasn't uh, really heard of you yet, or maybe they uh, missed the first interview, which I recommend they go check out, but this one I think will be uh, very good as well. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm a jiu-jitsu black belt. Um, I've been a black belt for 10 years and uh, used to be an MMA fighter, just focusing really on sports jiu-jitsu now and uh, building my program here in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, kind of positioned myself or somehow ended up being a, a kind of a leg lock resource for a lot of people. So I have, uh, you know, a few apps out there, illegal leg locks, which um, you can get on like the iTunes or uh Google Play, and then through a company called Digitsu, D-I-G-I-T-S-U dot com. Um, they're an amazing company that has a ton of different apps from awesome competitors, uh, and I have uh, some some other apps that are just located on that site as well. So I've got the leg lock thing where I do seminars uh, and apps with, and then um, you know I just run my jiu-jitsu program here in Little Rock at Westside MMA. Um, and I'm affiliated with GF Team under Denelson Pimenta. That's my coach. Uh, last time I uh, talked to you over the uh, podcast, um, you, you had a lot of other things kind of going on. You had uh, a side business with uh, a pawn shop, and you, you were hunting a lot. What's going on now? Are you still doing those things? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I sold my interest in the pawn shop. Uh, really enjoyed the business, but uh, it was a real time suck. You know, real brick and mortar uh, situation, and I like to move around a lot. I love to train. Uh, I travel a bunch. So it was really cramping me. Um, and I hated to, I hated to get out of the business. It was a good business, but I just felt like it was, uh, impeding on my lifestyle. So, um, still very good friends with, uh, uh, a guy who's like a father figure to me who I, I went into business with. And, um, so I'm not doing that. I, I I'm still hunting a lot and, uh, doing outdoorsy things. Uh, just got back from Colorado for two weeks with my son. We were, uh, up on the mesa and doing some trout fishing and camping and riding horses, just uh, doing that kind of stuff. So uh, still, still doing some, you know, a lot of deer hunting, trying to fish when I can. Um, business wise, uh, yeah, I have an interest in a uh, fitness kickboxing gym that we started in Northwest Arkansas, and it's off to a pretty good start. So um, I'm doing that, but it's not so much, it's not so hands on. Um, and, uh, so that's good, you know, less brick and mortar for me. Um, other than that, you know, my, my team is growing. My jujitsu program is really growing. I'm having a lot of fun just dialing in on sports jujitsu and, um, and, and just trying to, you know, be the best coach that I can be. I'm constantly, we have an incredible team, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm constantly assessing it and looking at, you know, what, what we've been working on the last few months and what we've been neglecting and then 
it really takes a lot of time and energy to nurture and grow it. Um, I used to be really involved with the MMA program and I even taught some of the kickboxing and I've really pulled myself away from that because uh, it takes so much time to to um, promote the jiu-jitsu program the way – not promote it, but to, to build it and, and cultivate it the way that I want it to be. So it's really taking off because I'm putting a lot of energy into it and, I'm, and, and, and personally, I'm getting a lot out of it. So I, I really enjoy uh, – I love my students so much and uh, I really enjoy spending time with them. So it really just makes me happy, man. I'm, I'm, you know, It's great to do something you love and I'm, I'm happy to be in a position to do it. You just said uh, something along the lines of trying to become the best coach that you could possibly be. Uh, what has changed if you look back? At, I know you've been a black belt for 10 years. If you look back over the past maybe four or five, what has changed about the way you coach uh, jiu-jitsu? Um, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of like coaching philosophies that I have, and we can, you know, we can talk a lot about that stuff. I'm, I'm a big nerd, so we can get into that. Um, but, you know, the biggest change was um, I was always doing – MMA. I was always doing jujitsu for MMA. That was the end result. When you started training in the late nineties, that you know, you in America, you weren't training to be a, a mundial champion. You were training jujitsu to apply it in a self defense or MMA scenario, and that was always the purpose for me. Um, and like six, seven years ago, I started working with Dennis and Pimenta, uh, and, and we really hit it off. And we've um, we've trained a lot together. You know, he comes down, spends weeks with me, and I, I've uh, been to Brazil probably three times. Uh, uh, with him, not, you know, I've been to Brazil six times, but I think I've been there like three times staying with him. And so I've gotten to work a lot with him. Um, and he really is just like, you know, the, the term world-class gets thrown around, but he is a world-class grappler. And, uh, so I've really been able to take like my half guard, butterfly, close guard game that I'd always played with MMA. And it kind of, it goes, it, you can train that gi and no gi and all those guards work and, and gi as well. But I've really been able to develop the sportier side of things like your open guard, your, you know, more daily Heva spider guard, passing those guards, uh, and then just all the nuances that come with it. Um, that, that's been a big change for me. And, uh, I think that that's, that's what's really changed as far as like my coaching. Um, you know, a lot of just trial and error. Uh, I started coaching at purple belt. So, um, like early 2000s, like 2003, 2000, maybe 2004. Um, so in the beginning, like I kind of had this, like, I'll just throw a bunch at you and you know, whatever sticks sticks like, and, and that's one way of going about it, you know, just, just showing tons of stuff. And now I've really pared it down. Um, and so we focus a lot like on just passing and sweeping and, I feel like that's the pivotal point in sport jiu-jitsu. You know, the first person to put, put points on the board in general, but especially in that situation, is the one that takes control of the match. So like in wrestling, they say like the first person to get a takedown wins the match 80% of the time. I would venture to say that's even more so uh, uh, the case in jiu-jitsu. You know, the first person to sweep or pass probably wins more than 80% of the time. So I focus a lot on that. And then, um, and I've had amazing results from it. And then I noticed a lot of my grapplers weren't really strong finishers. Uh, and that's a revelation that I had recently with a, a great, uh, little tournament we did. So, uh, lately I've been talking about, you know, what are we doing after we're passing? We're submitting people and trying to dial in on that. And I've gone back and, and been focusing on some, some sub submission scenarios and, uh, trying to call, cultivate that aspect of the game. So, um, 
it's one of those things like I'm my own worst critic and, and I'm always trying to make things better. But uh, it is a lot easier to go from having really good sweeps and passes and adding submissions than it is to be like a submission grappler, but you have a crappy guard and you're not so good at passing the guard. So um, I feel good about where we are and, and we're always going to be evolving and making changes. And um, that's kind of my coaching style. Just, you know, I've focused a lot on the sweeping and passing, trying to focus on the positions that you're in 80% of the time. Um, I'm not doing group classes on Worm Guard and Baron Bolo. Those are guards, and that, that those are types of games that are developed after class, before class, uh, when the high ranks are together, and you know people are experimenting or working on new things. Um, I'm, I'm taking, you know, the, the the fundamental positions and really trying to master the basics in my programs. Um, and and you know it's relative what what basic is, but um, that's kind of my coaching style, and and it continues to evolve all the time. I'm I'm, I'm I'm really big into the mental side of the game, so I talk a lot with my students about their mentality and and uh, going into the matches. And I, I asked you a question uh, about um, what you've learned with coaching, and uh, and when I ask it, I was thinking about like what you're showing at class and and basically what you've answered. But as you're answering it, you're talking about other things as far as the mental side of jujitsu and these things. What's the the difference in how the, the different roles between coaching jujitsu and teaching jujitsu is, is that basically the same thing or do you see like a different category for each one of those you know i think that's an issue of semantics um of course anybody can teach you a move you know um uh but like my my role as a coach is to like to to give you what you need in, in the realms of jujitsu. So I don't try to take somebody who's, you know, doesn't know their place on the mat yet. I don't try to push them into being a competitor. You know, I just, I just try to make them feel comfortable and I, I try to give them, you know, uh, positive feedback. And so they can develop real confidence, uh, on, on things that they're actually doing well. Um, and then, uh, I have people that are amazing competitors, but maybe they're, they're falling short in tournaments. And so the, I mean, not amazing competitors, but amazing at jujitsu, especially in the gym. Uh, and they're falling short in tournaments. And so, you know, uh, I'm not teaching them at this point. I'm coaching them as far as my, my definitions of the word. And so my, my involvement as a coach is really, you know, paying attention to what, what's going on with them. You know, like I have a really talented guy. He's a blue belt and he's a, he's a killer. He's a, he, He's a bit of a spaz at times, um, and he's, but he's a natural. And I've seen him um, tournaments, uh, and I'd always, I always started putting him in advanced divisions because I wanted him to grapple like the best guys because he's that good. And then I would see him like fade in the middle of the matches and kind of just break down and, and mentally quit. And I thought it was because he was getting tired. That's normally what happens. Uh, but you know, I sat down and talked with him about it, and that wasn't the case. It was just. He wasn't ready. He, he didn't know how to process when his A game wasn't working. Like this, this is what I do. And I go for the submission or this is what I do. And I pass the guard. And then when he was getting resistance, like he didn't know how to process that. And that's what was, he would get frustrated and then he would, uh, more or less mentally like quit. Uh, and so, so that was good. That's actually an easier thing for me to fix as a coach. And so I helped like have a paradigm shift with them and just explain to him, look, like you're not always going to finish the guy. And if the guy's defending your pass or, or your sweep or your submission, like you have to, you have to have that shift of, okay, like this guy's tough. Like I may not finish him. I'm going to have to beat him. 
And so now your focus is like, I'm going to outwork him and uh, uh, I'm going to wear him down with my movement and my pressure. And, and at the end of the match, if I'm the one moving forward, but even if the, the score is tied, then I'm more likely, you know, going to get my hand raised at the end. Uh, or if we go to overtime and I've been putting pressure on the guy, I've been in my rhythm. So I should be fresher than him. And then in overtime, I'll be more likely to score. So I'm putting the work in. So I got to talk with him about that. Hopefully in the next tournament, we can see if that makes a difference for him. It's a good example of really helping somebody out with what they need. You, you look at the situation and you just by asking him, like, you know, what are you having trouble with out there? Are you getting tired or, or are you getting frustrated that the people are hard to finish? Exactly. Yeah. Like you, we can have assumptions. Um, and, and, and you can't help but have assumptions, but uh, um, it is good to talk with people one-on-one and, and dial in with them. And, uh, you know, my team's pretty big right now, so uh, it, it is difficult. It's a difficult job to, you know, to be a perfect coach to every one of your students. But, um, you know, people talk about having favorites, and, you know, I have favorites, and that's my, my favorites are the ones that are there consistently. It doesn't have to do with their talent level. It has to do with the ones that are just consistently coming to class, and they are the ones that that I feel the most responsible for. Um, I try to encourage people that are a little flakier with their attendance and, you know, life happens and they're busy and, um, you know, these guys aren't making money with jujitsu. So, uh, I get it, but you know, if, if somebody's given me a hundred percent, I, I feel responsible to, to be the best coach that I can be for them. Uh, not just for the team, but really, really focus on what they need and, and, and try to give them some direction. And it's not always mentality stuff, but with me, I, I talk a lot about it with them. Um, just trying to get their head right. Uh, you, you, all the old timers tell you it's 90% mental and the young kids will want to argue with you. But uh, uh, I like to clarify that for people. When we're, when we're saying that it's 90% mental, what we're saying is, you know, us coaches, is that if your head's not in it, then nothing else matters. So if if your if, if you have a poor mental game, then it doesn't matter how good of a grappler you are. If they start to pass, and then you start thinking, oh, this guy is so strong, or oh, that normally works, I suck, or you know, if you have these negative spirals, then um, then it doesn't matter how good you are. You're already beating yourself. Uh, the other side of the it's ninety percent mental is it's this is also it's ninety percent mental when we're, we're considering other things are equal. You know, so like if me and you are, are, are in a match against each other, we're both black belts, we're both in the same age brackets, Masters Worlds. Well, you know, we're relatively going to be on the same level. So it is 90% mental. What else is there? You know, if you're as good as I am, we're both around the same strength and flexibility. Our attributes are pretty equal. Our time and training is pretty equal. Um, then that's, the, you know, it's 90% mental. Who comes in ready to win? Who's, who's, going to have a uh the term i use as a a fast start and a strong finish you know who's going to fade um who's out there just kind of going like we'll see what happens who has a game plan and gets their grips and gets right into their game this 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 these mental things these these things uh make up 90 percent of it and and as a coach um i i firmly uh, uh, uh believe that assuming you're working hard and you're in shape it's 90 percent mental if your head's not in the game even if you're very talented, that it's a huge problem you have. You have a ninety percent problem in front of you, and uh, and it could go the other way. If you're super confident and you're able to, to kind of push somebody past what they thought, you could use that ninety percent mental to the advantage. But if you lack the skill and, and the other person's pretty mentally there, you're going to have some trouble. But if you you first got to get in the game mentally, 
if uh, if competing and 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 that's I think a common problem where somebody goes in on the mat and they they go to class and they do great and then they go to try to compete and it's just like they're just struggling to to compete like they do like performance on the training mats and that's the mental side of it that's that's kind of getting after them too yeah yeah absolutely and and you know it goes all the way down into game planning you know i have uh uh but they're obviously better on the top than the bottom or bottom than the top you know and so you you you're you know you really get into uh getting them to fight hard to be in those positions that they're powerful in and um you know, sometimes if a guy doesn't have a good guard, it's kind of like MMA, like just standing back up. They're, they're, they might be more likely to get a takedown or if the other guy pulls past their guard, they would be back. So you kind of have to, um, you have to give them a game plan, but then like you have to build them up mentally where it's like they're not beating themselves up when they get put on their back. Like that's going to happen, you know, and, and, um, the, the failure is not fatal kind of, kind of thing. Um, because what happens is, you know, you get points scored on you or something bad goes happen and you create this negative spiral where you get down on yourself and then it's just so hard to climb back out of that. Like the you you pretty once you're in a spiral like that, you just you have to be lucky and maybe the other guy's just totally out of shape to come out of that. You know, he has to break or something. Um so I really try to I really try to develop that mental toughness in my guys and um and, and that is a big that's a big thing that I know that separates me from uh, a lot of coaches out there is that I'm really in tune with that aspect of the game. And that comes just from years of fighting MMA being, you know, being on larger stages and stuff. I've, I've got a lot of experience battling my own, you know, problems with with confidence that uh, that has made me a better coach. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Yogi Berra said it. Uh, baseball is 90 percent mental and the other half is physical and uh, Yogi Berra said a lot of funny things and and I don't know how serious he was with that quote but if your mental side's messed up you you're at best dealing with half of what you're able to do and uh and so maybe that was a quote that he meant to be funny but I think that it uh it makes sense to me uh, as far as that goes you, you mentioned a little bit about your MMA and uh listened uh, to our last interview we really kind of skipped over your background as far as martial arts what which you started with and and different paths you've taken as far as martial arts it sounds like you're predominantly involved with uh, sport jujitsu now but could you maybe take us to a little bit of uh, history about what you've done for martial arts or what you've done as far as training martial arts yeah i, I wrestled a couple of semesters in high school i was absolutely horrible at it but um did much better my, my second year than my first year and then i moved to little rock and started training jujitsu and um the only striking program at the jiu-jitsu gym was taekwondo. So I did a little taekwondo as well. Uh, was doing that, realized taekwondo was not an effective martial art and, uh, stopped doing the, the, the taekwondo. By that time they started a kickboxing program. So I was able to do that. Um, and I was, uh, continuing to train jiu-jitsu, always loved jiu-jitsu, uh, started fighting amateur MMA. Uh, I think like the summer I graduated high school, if I'm not mistaken. And then, there was no avenue for there was no avenue for lighter weight guys to fight. There was no you know it was such a subculture at the time, so I had no aspirations of of you know becoming a professional fighter. I was just fighting to you know I was a I was a kid that you know was picked on sometimes, not excessively, but you know was insecure and, and skinny and unathletic, um, and so I was having fun training jujitsu and just testing myself, picking up fights and. So I continued training and, uh, you know, uh, 
got it, you know, went to college in Little Rock and, and so I was in home and so I was training all through college and ended up landing a good job and, you know, and, and, and was making pretty good money and still training and, and fighting like twice a year. I was already, I was professional at that point. And, um, and then that took me to, uh, a point where, you know, I was fighting for like 500 bucks and there was no money. There was no, the UFC was growing, but there was no 155 pound division and I fight at 45. So it was like, there was no way I could fight at 170. So I stopped fighting for a while and then, um, the ultimate fighter came out and I went and tried out for it. Uh, and I, and I made it and I, and so I ended up getting on the show and, um, unfortunately like leading up to the show, you know, I wasn't training MMA anymore. I hadn't fought in like two years. I'd had a, a label tear. So between that and just, there not really being any, any money and, and, and nowhere to go with it. I just, you know, I was on the shelf for about two years. Once the ultimate fighter didn't have a great showing on there, um, because I just wasn't in the position to, to really be fighting. And, uh, uh, luckily they brought everybody back to fight and I won my fight, uh, when the season was over, which was my first fight in the UFC, which was awesome. And uh, I ended up having two more fights in the UFC. I lost the next two. Um, and then everything went from there. You know, I fought for a few more shows after that, including Bellator. And, uh, um, and my, my, I had some surgeries on my hand and my wrist. And then my very last fight, I broke my hand. And I just thought, all right, well, it's time to, you know, it's time to make some money. And, and, and you know, I think I've, I've being realistic with my capabilities uh, uh, as a fighter. It's, it's probably a good time to stop fighting for peanuts and, and that's when I started, you know, focusing on, on my business. And I, you know, I started the pawn shop and started doing other things. So, uh, it's kind of a snapshot of my, my martial arts journey. We have, uh, a few questions from, uh, some listeners here. Mislav wanted me to ask about your experience with the ultimate fighter. Um, what was, I, I couldn't imagine living in a, uh, like a big house with a bunch of, young guys who are all trying to fight each other and, and, and make it competitively and, and, and make a career out of this. Um, it seems like a kind of an odd situation where, um, the social dynamics are, are kind of trouble. Did you, did you get much as far as I'm, I'm always, when I do watch the show, I don't watch it every season, but when I watch it, I try to, are people actually learning things? Are they getting better? Um, did you, did you go in there and like, feel like at the end of the experience you were better at MMA from, from your training there? Yeah, you know, that's a great question and a good observation. Um, as far as the training learned, I, I didn't get a lot of training off of the show. Um, I lost pretty early on. So I would, I had a great coaching staff. So I would just pick the brains of like Amari Batechi and, uh, 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 this guy Al and, uh, who's, which I would, I would pick their brains, but, um, as far as just like getting better, I think the one thing that I really was ahead of the curve on because of that show was like the cage work. Kenny Johnson was a wrestling coach for us and he taught like a really good cage defense, um, uh, like tactics or whatever. And that really was awesome. Cause when I, when I came back home, I could teach all my fighters that stuff. And it wasn't really something that was well known on like how to, how to operate against the fence. So I learned that aspect as far as like boxing and jiu-jitsu or mma in general um it was just a lot of working out and uh, you know there's no time to teach and develop skills in six weeks people fighting every week it was um so you, i didn't really like get better per se with the exception of 
you know, I had zero experience with like cage work. And then, and then I had a really good jump start on it because of, uh, because of Kenny Johnson being on the coaching staff. Um, and then as far as the house was concerned, uh, you know, I didn't have a good experience in the house just because, you know, I was, I was a bit older than most of the guys. There were some guys older than me. Um, but you know, I was already pretty established in my life and I feel like, um, it it just made it difficult to connect with the other guys. They were, they were all younger and, uh, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't already into like their careers or anything. They were literally just like young fighters trying to make it. And I really had a lot of problems just connecting with them, um, finding common ground and stuff. Um, for them, you know, it's six weeks in a house, not having to work, whatever jobs they had, not having to buy groceries, your groceries are bought for you, whatever you want. Like it's a sweet gig. Um, you know, but for me, I, you know, I had, a, I was very comfortable already. I, I, I had my own business, you know, I was already in my house and, um, I live a good life. You know, I, if I want to go eat a steak, I just go to the restaurant and buy a steak and that freedom that, <laughs> you know, that had that being taken away and then being stuck in a house with, you know, I, I'm a dork, man. I love to talk about interesting things and, and, um, business philosophy and, you know, politics to a degree, you know, religion, I don't care. I, and, and, and I wasn't able to really do any of that, you know, so it just kind of in there and, and it wasn't, it, I, I didn't have a good time, um, you know, in the house, but it opened up so many doors for me. And, uh, I definitely don't regret doing it. Um, and, and I'm really thankful that I had a, a unique opportunity to see what that's like and, uh, you know, to be on a reality show. And, uh, and then that's why I was in the UFC. There's tons of fighters that, that deserve to be there more than I was, but for half the people in the UFC, it was being at the right place at the right time. And that, that includes me. Um, so, yeah, uh, that, that's pretty much that. You you were given an opportunity, and um, you were in a position where you could jump on it, and that's that's a lot of life is kind of just being ready for the opportunity and taking it if it presents itself, and and still being able to go forward and and have a good uh, game plan if that opportunity doesn't present itself. I, I just the dynamics of a house like that, young people competitive i think about even at, at at my job i'm a firefighter and we'll have some days we'll have like big tests where we have to do uh big training and, and it's you know kind of a competitive thing the day that that's happening is people are different you know they they're nervous you could tell they're uh, a little bit worried about you know they want to do a good job and and it's like loosen up a little bit we can still have fun and, and enjoy uh, each other's company but some people just can't get um kind of I don't know. You, you, their um, nerves and their self doubt maybe kind of manif- manifest into like a you know a little bit of offense sometimes, and and it uh, yeah. I, I <laughs> and then of course with a bunch of guys in a house that are all competing for the same exact thing, that that does seem like a weird uh, environment. Do you watch the show now anymore? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. Uh, I watch about half the UFCs that come out, and uh, I don't. I haven't watched. I've maybe seen three episodes of, of all the ultimate fighters since my season, just, you know, if they're randomly on, I may yeah. watch it for a little bit, but, um, you know, I love to watch, you know, if it, I'm, I'm, you know, guys like us were, were in martial arts. So if it was a show where they were actually like showing just working out and then the fights, like <laughs> I would watch every show, but, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, the build up for it and, you know, the commercials and I just, you know, it doesn't do anything for me. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't watch it, but I, I don't watch a lot of TV in general. I you know I work late, so um, by the time I get home, 
uh, I'm just trying to wind down. So, uh, you know, I miss a lot of the shows. Yeah. And I just, I just don't do a lot of TV. I'm not above it by any means. There are some shows that I watch that I really like, but um, I, I don't do a lot of it. It's hard to to sit down in front of a TV for very long for me as well. I mean, it's it's just it's just hard to do that. But uh, I think you're right. And maybe I'm remembering wrong, but the earlier the Ultimate Fighter show, um, they showed more of the actual training, and and I I felt like I was learning a little bit of stuff. And yeah, and, exactly. And anymore, it's more. I mean, and, and I understand why they're trying to build names and they're, fighters and, and something that's yeah, marketable. they're playing to the market. The average, the average, we are not the market. The, the UFC can't sustain on people like you and me. So the drama has to be there, and uh, you know it's business, it's capitalism. I, I get it, and I'm with it. But um, what happens is, you know, like the base that built it kind of gets away from it. it. You know, it's like that to, with jiu-jitsu to a degree. You know, a lot of the old school black belts, man, they're like, you know, the IBJJF makes all these rules, and everybody kind of follows them. But some of these black belts, they were black belts before there even was an IBJJF. <laughs> You know, they're like, <laughs> you don't want me to reap the knee? Like, who are you? To, you know what I mean? I'm going to teach my jiu-jitsu. And they, you know, they do that. Or they do heel hooks in the gi. I've, I've met guys like that. And and I respect it. Hey, you know, like, that's that's cool, you know. Um, so what, what happens is, you know, you have a base. And then when it gets mainstream, a lot of times the same sport loses the, the base that kind of got it where it was. Because, you know, it's mainstream now. So it's not a conspiracy or anything of that nature it's just the nature of of uh, uh of personalities and patterns and, and people in general it's just the way things tend to go um another question from the our facebook group here um gary wanted to know about uh what it was like uh being influenced by billy robinson um, it, it was a real honor. Like, you, you know, I don't like to use that word loosely, like the word honor. It was a, a true honor to, to meet Billy, let alone to, on numerous occasions, be able to have beers with him, to, to have been able to train with him. Um, you know, the understanding, uh, one, one fundamental that he really drilled into me and was a big breakthrough for my straight ankle lock game was just power sources, you know, really getting that foot on the hip, um, and understanding that, uh, you know, he, he, he was, you know, he, for, for me, he was better than Hicks and Gracie. You know, for me, he was, he was, uh, as far as grappling was concerned, he was a, he was like a God. And, uh, it was unfortunate that his body was so far gone that, uh, you know, it was really difficult for him to teach and stuff, but he had an answer for every question that you could come up with. And his answer was oftentimes so different than what you thought it was going to be. You know, he came at it from a from a old school wrestling perspective, catch wrestling perspective, and it was really neat. I asked him about you know when people kind of invert when they're trying to pass their guard, you know, and their their butts in the air and they're they're giving the back for a moment and they're back, you know, I'm like how would you deal with that, you know? And he said he would pick them up and suplex them. <laughs> he would grab one arm around their waist and one arm between their legs and he'd pick them up and slam them. And I thought, man, that's a hell of an answer, you know, like. We we're doing jujitsu in a bubble, you know, of, of 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 the current rules. But you look at like an EBI or what you know, some of these other platforms now, and you're like, that's a legit situation, you know. They're, they're upside down in the air for a moment. You can grab them and slam them, and that'll that'll change things a little bit. Maybe someone has a really good guard. It might be worth the energy to do that. So you know, not totally applicable to my sport jujitsu program, but um, I'm just giving an example of how he would answer questions in a way that you wouldn't expect. And, um, 
he was just so knowledgeable. It was like, you know, uh, rest in peace to Billy Robinson, man. I, um, you know, like everybody that passes away, you know, what I would give to just have one more beer with them and just talk with them. Uh, I, I love the guy and, and uh, it was a true honor to get to work with him. He was one of a kind. He was a European champion wrestler. He was a pro wrestler. He was a catch wrestler. He came from a family of boxers. I mean, he was he was one of a kind, man. He really was. What was it? I kind of want to get a little bit of a glimpse of what it was like to have a beer with him and and, and to go out and be not on the mat so much, but just... Uh, oh, man, like like the, the life experience of a guy who's traveled the world, you know, born in England and, and been to India and, and been all over Europe before jumbo jets, you know, having to fly and having <laughs> layovers in different towns. And, you know, he was in countries that aren't even countries anymore. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he trained with Carl Gotch and he, you know, he, he, he spent so much time in Japan um, you know, he was a storyteller, man, the pro wrestling days. Like he had a story, he had so many stories and so much, uh, knowledge about history. Um, it, it was awesome. You know, it was, it was incredible to, to be able to sit down and have beers with them. And, and, a, uh, one of the best martial artists I've ever met, Nathan Leverton, he's out of England, um, uh, in, in uh, a town called Leicester. He actually coached uh, Andre Winter, who knocked me out, and that's how we got connected. Um, he was a big fan of Billy's, and he had come down to the states, and uh, he had had Billy up at his gym, and you know he soaked it up. And so, like to be able to introduce Billy to some of my close friends, and and them get to be charmed by him, grabbing a beer with them, or we'll go grab dinner, or sushi. Um, you know, we did that quite a bit, and uh, it was awesome, man. It, it was really cool. Some of the audience, I think, is familiar with catch wrestling, but could you maybe describe what what it really even is? Man, you know, it was a wrestling sport that was primarily based on takedowns, but there was also pins and there were also submissions. The rules varied, you know, depending on the, the kind of like jujitsu, like, you know, you have EBI, you have IBJJF, you know, depending on the matches in the tournament, sometimes the, the rules would be different. But it's a wrestling-based submission art that that – predisposes that it's better to be on top. Um, and the, and the, the things that you see in catch wrestling are pretty much what you see in grappling and MMA. Um, you know, you, you see very seldom you see submissions from people's backs and, uh, uh, most people want to be on top. If they get taken down, they stand back up, even if that means giving their back. Uh, it, it, it is, if it was done right and could be done, can still, for me, um, the best rule set of of grappling that translates to MMA. You know, the rule sets of jiu-jitsu don't do a lot for you um, when it comes to uh, MMA. Um, but I will say, you know, catch wrestling is one of those things like 90% of the catch – this is a statistic I'm pulling out of my mind. <laughs> you know, like 90% of the catch wrestlers are garbage. They're just they're just personality types that, that don't like to follow the, the pack. So they don't want to do jujitsu. So they find something else and, uh, they end up just talking a lot more about fundamentals and theories or whatever than they are actually on the mats training. Um, right now in America and most of the world, if you want to be a good grappler, you go to a jujitsu gym and you mix in great things from other arts like catch wrestling or sambo or judo. Um, you know, jujitsu is the melting pot of, of, of grappling arts. It'll take something from another art and then now it's called jujitsu, even though it came from something else. 
But with catch wrestling, you know, with the exceptions of Josh Barnett and Eric Paulson, who, who, who really, you know, aren't pure catch wrestlers, but they're amazing. And I have so much respect for them. You know, outside of those guys, like, um, Gene LaBelle, Go Car, you know, my coach, Max Bishop, um, you know, outside of a few guys, like, fundamentally catch wrestling done. You, know, you, you you can't resurrect it. You don't, you know, that, that's not, it, you can't create it again. It's, it's over that there's so much that's, that's a art and a skill that is lost. Um, and it's sad, but that's, you know, and, and it was, it was fundamentally gone even while Billy was alive. But I, I and, and just to, I feel bad casting stones at catch wrestling, but you know, it, there's a, there's a small scene of catch wrestlers out there, but I never met these guys. And Billy Robinson was in Little Rock with me for five years. You know, he was the real life Hicks and Gracie of catch wrestling and martial arts. And these, you know, people weren't coming down and training with him. Um, so if, if, if somebody claims to be a catch wrestler and, and they, and they, they weren't going out of their way to, to work with, with him, um, then I can't really take them serious as a, as a martial artist. Um, I had, uh, Neil Melanson on the show a while back and, and he was definitely, uh, he had a DVD called uh, The Catch Wrestling Formula, and I really enjoyed that. And it seems like, in his description of it, and I'm probably not doing it quite justice, but, uh, you know, basically submission and, and, and with a heavy focus on positions where uh, of dominance are very important, with that, and it translates really well over to MMA. So like you said, like top is really important to be. You don't see a lot of stuff off your back, although it's possible. But you, you know, that big emphasis on getting top control and then submitting somebody, or you know, doing damage or whatever, uh, and that's kind of why a lot of people talk about it. Like you say, not a lot of people actually do it. But uh, you know, for MMA, it, it really, you know, take out. You know, would you rather learn uh, really strong guard passes or you know, hundreds of techniques to do off your back? <laughs> you got to get to that strong position in MMA and, and get there in an effective manner. And I think that looking at from what little I know of catch wrestling it is a great uh, positional submission uh, fighting. It is, uh, and, a lot, sport. and a lot of these guys get that mentality, you know, and they're and that's good. And maybe they're teaching techniques around that mentality, but um, you know, it's it's just so much deeper than that. Um, you know, like Coach Billy, you know, he he loved upper body takedowns. And stuff. Stuff. And man, your average, you know, grapplers and even catch wrestlers, you know, like, I don't know, you know, they're, they're not, they're not in there, you know, chest, they're not winning Greco tournaments, you know, chest to chest with guys. And like, that's, that's what catch wrestling was. I mean, they were real wrestlers, not grapplers that did some wrestling to be better at grappling. Like, no, they were wrestlers that were doing submissions. It's just, you know, and I don't know Neil, I've never met him. And, and, um, and uh, he's got his place in the martial arts world, like the rest of us. But you know, when I when I think of catch wrestling, you know, like um, and what it really was, and hearing hearing um, Billy talk about Wigan and how they trained and the mentality and stuff, man, there's you can't just read about it. You know, train a couple weekends with somebody or whatever, and then in my mind, you know, really represent what catch wrestling is, uh, and that that you know. I come from from a really, and I don't claim to be a catch wrestler. I'm definitely influenced by it, but I could never claim to be a catch wrestler. My wrestling is not near good enough, you know, to uh, to claim that because I, I I hold it to a high standard because my experience with catch wrestling comes from the go car lineage, which was you know half Gene Labelle, the train with Lou uh, 
Holtz, I think it was, I forget. But and then Billy Robinson. So you know, that's real deal guys that grew up when catch wrestling was an actual sport, and there were people actually doing it, and there were actual world championships. Um, so I look at it from that perspective. But a lot of people are, you know, everybody in MMA now is taking a catch wrestling perspective, except for you know, a, a, you know, the, a, a small minority. You know, people are are rarely pulling guard uh, in MMA or or trying to do complex movements or whatever. If you end up on your back, you get to on a fence and you stand up, or you roll over and you stand up. I mean, and if you're standing up, you're doing wrestling. You're fighting the hand. You're you're breaking the grips. You got to turn back and face the guy. You know, in position to not get you know reshot on. I mean, they're they're really wrestling uh, now in MMA, even the jiu-jitsu guys. So people are kind of doing it, but you can't. In my opinion, in my experience, is I don't think anybody can really claim to really be a catch wrestler now. And now I just think it's a diff- it's a way to dif- differentiate yourself from other people. Just say yeah, I'm doing catch wrestling, and it's like okay, like you've separated yourself from the herd, and then now maybe you know that you're, you're 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 finding your niche, and that's okay too. I got I got no problems with but with it, but I. You know, I just don't know where all these guys were that were catch wrestling when, when Billy was alive because they weren't they weren't they weren't visiting him and training him and he was the last one you know from from that Wigan gym in uh, in England and uh, so that that's that's my perception of of catch wrestling as far as like as as a real art you know I think Josh Barnett spent some real time with Billy and I think Sakuraba had and I know Eric Paulson had spent um, some time with them but. Um, outside of those guys, I don't know how anybody else can have a real connection to it. Moving on a little bit, we have another question uh, from one of our listeners, uh, Frank Lee. You've met him several times, and yeah, and, uh, I'm a big both, fan of Frank. Yeah, it's... we both like Frank. He wants to know uh, which tournaments you think hill hooks should be allowed in, and what rank. I don't know if he meant tournaments. I mean, I think they should be allowed in every tournament. Uh, in the gi, yeah, okay, we can. You know, I, I don't think we need to be doing hill hooks in the gi. Um, if we did, it'd be fine. I'd tap all the same. I think I could train hill hooks in the gi, and I don't think it would be dangerous. Um, but I don't have a problem tapping if I'm caught, and I, identi- I can identify when I'm caught. Uh, that, that's an interesting question. You know, it, it just depends on on who you're dealing with. If you've got, you know, if majority of the world's not doing leg locks, you don't need beginners doing leg locks it, because then you know you you can't promote the sport that way you got a bunch of guys trying to do scissor sweeps well if you're in nogi doing a scissor sweep you're handing the guy a hill hook so um you know you got one gym that's like i don't care what everybody else is doing i'm teaching hill hooks and then uh they're doing that on day one and then the other gyms are like building a positional foundation and and, and they're doing they're not doing hill hooks and then they go to the tournament and you know the guy gets hill hooked right away and he's like i don't know what that is um so you know, I, I think I, it, it's just up to the tournaments to decide whether or not they want to allow them or not. Uh, you know, personally, I think I think it's a joke that people think that they're, they're so dangerous and that reaping the knee is so dangerous. Um, and there's some real problems with, you know, you can't reap the knee, but I'll let your ankle get dislocated like the finals of uh, with the medium heavy division <laughs> at IBJJF. You know, you don't stop the match when the guy's foot's dislocated, but... Uh, but you don't let him reap the knee. It's like there's there's a huge logical disconnect here with our rules and the realities. The realities are the two most dangerous things in grappling are takedowns and kimuras. 
that's the reality. More people get hurt doing Kimuras than anything else because of all the buildup to break the grip. But a lot of guys don't know how to stop once they break the grip and not follow through with the same energy that it took to break the grip all the way around the back. So um, I'd like to see a more common sense approach taken to, to the rules. But, you know, as far as what divisions they should do it, it's just up to the tournaments. You know, the, the consumers uh, uh, decide that. And, you know, and for me, I I I, uh, I don't have a problem with entering a tournament for beginners if heel hooks are legal. I'll go over a quick little, you know, as long as they're true beginners, I can I can teach my guys to be aware of, of heel hooks uh, in a short amount of time before before a specific tournament, and I'll still enter my guys in them. Um, but I think it's it, I think the answer to his question is basically the market, man. The market decides. If there aren't many people wanting to do hill hooks, then you're not going to see them. And if there's people wanting to do them, then you're going to see them. And I love competition. I love that uh, the EBI competes now with other tournaments. I like ADCC has the best rules for me. I think the only the only difference I would make is I would score the whole time. I wouldn't have the first half not scored. And then the IBJJF is one of my least favorite uh, rule sets, but uh, that's where you find the best competition. So if you really want to do something difficult um, – you know, winning an EBI is difficult, but, uh, but, you know, also winning, uh, IBJJF tournaments, uh, hold a lot of merit. So, um, it's a long way to say, you know, I think it's not for me to say the, <laughs> the seal hooks. If it's up to me, you know, let everybody do them. Um, but I can understand I'm not being in the gi. And I think ultimately it's just the market, right? You know, I can, I've competed in a lot of different rule sets in my life, you know, combat wrestling, IBJJF, Abu Dhabi trials, just, you know, a ton of, you know, Naga, Grappler's Quest, many different rule sets. And, um, I consider myself a pretty well-rounded martial artist and grappler and I'm up to compete in different rule sets. And, uh, so for me, it's not a big deal. I play by the rules and don't make excuses if, uh, if it doesn't work out, you know, we all knew the rules going into it. So that's my perspective on, on heel hooks and tournaments. <laughs> it's uh, interesting here coming from you. Um, if you've talked a little bit about um, uh, learning about the power source from Billy Robinson and, and a little bit about uh, some leg lock things here, just real quick, he's got two really great apps about leg locks out there. And I'll put links to those in the show notes. If anybody's interested in checking those out, I definitely recommend uh, doing that. If you want to learn, uh, learn your leg locks, learn from Rolly. You can't go wrong with that. I had uh, Justin Rader on the show uh, a little while back and I asked him, I don't know what question I asked him, but we ended up started talking about heel hooks and you know, I've seen him get out of multiple heel hooks and I'm just really yeah, impressed. by. He's real. Yeah, me too. And, and, and I said, what would you think about a heel hooks in the key? He said, I would be okay with that because um, the control he could have on their, on their sleeve, on their wrist, is, is, is he thinks he wouldn't have any trouble with, with dealing with somebody who's attacking his heel if he's able to get his hand on their uh, sleeve and, and control that. So I, <laughs> from a technical standpoint, I, I really haven't messed with that, but uh, he seems to think no, that— he's, he's dead on. No, he's dead on. He doesn't—you know, Justin Rader is an amazing crap, but he doesn't need my affirmation. But uh, he's dead on— um, you know, you're worried about footlocks. If you have a sleeve and a collar, you're you're not going to get footlocked. So it's it's when you lose four points of control, specifically your hands, that your feet are vulnerable in the gi. So as long and, and you sh- and even if there were no leg locks, you should always have your hands controlling the guy's posture through the collar or his sleeves. So as long as you have at least one arm and a collar, it's really difficult to be leg locked and uh, and to finish a leg lock. So. 
uh, he's dead on, man. He would, we would adapt to it. The game would change. 50-50 would be different, and uh, we could reap the knees a little bit. And I think uh, it would be a truer example of submission grappling, you know, is what, which is, you know, what jiu-jitsu is supposed to be more or less in the uniform. So he's, he's, that's a good statement that he said, and I, I agree with him 110%. Yeah, and I, I interview, I don't know, four, upper 40s of people uh, a year. I mean, almost one a week or almost, yeah. And uh, for some reason, that statement kind of stayed in my mind and, and uh, really, wow, I think it, uh, that's a really interesting thing he's, he's talking about. Uh, last time I had you on here, you said something about, uh, I asked you about coaching and, uh, you know, helping somebody out during their first tournament. And something that you said that stuck with me, and I've mentioned it in multiple episodes, is uh, being able to funnel your match and, and and get it to go where you want. And I just wanted to, I guess, bring that up one more time because I finally have you back on the show. I've been over 100 episodes talking about, occasionally talking about funneling your match, getting it, you know, starting with it, you know, in a big place like the top of a funnel and then end up getting it right where you want it at the base of that funnel, getting it kind of corralled. Um, mm-hmm. you have anything to say about that anymore? Cause I would happy to hear you talk about, uh, funneling your match. Uh, I'll give a real world example of it. You know, um, the, the number one pass is, uh, is the knee slide. You know, it's the most common pass in jujitsu, the, the cut through, whatever you call it. And, um, so basically, you know, people are defending that with a good frame, with a reverse daily heave and a foot on the hip or, uh, maybe a lockdown, but you know, there's a lot of ways people are dealing with that. So, um, you just have all these objections, but you, you, you know, so you're starting in a macro movement, like I'm in half guard, but I want to slide my knee across and finish the pass. And so basically you're just chiseling away each objection. If they have a frame, you break the grip on your collar and you break the frame away. If they're controlling your wrist, which is stopping you from grabbing their collar or getting shoulder pressure, you know, then you circle the the wrist grip and grab their wrist and, and try to break the grip that way. Um, if it's, uh, I don't know if I said reverse daily heva, you know, you may have to uh, uh, address the reverse daily heva, but you're basically just chipping away these objections. And and each time, like I might get past the reverse daily heva, but I still have the frame. And then I break through the frame and then, I'm, you know, I just have to free my foot and then I've passed the guard. So I'm just... You know, each time I, re, I re, uh, uh, redact or take away one of these objections, one of these defenses, I'm getting deeper into the funnel. And the deeper I get into my knee slide pass, the, the less variables there are. You know, once I break down the reverse daily heave, or if I had head positioning like head on the same side, well, there's no way the guy can invert. So that, that's off the table. So we're like much deeper in the funnel at that point. So um, that's like a uh, one of the most common um, strategies and mentalities that I teach is, uh, you know, getting people to, to dial in on, on, on the knee slice and, uh, you know, it's part of the funnel. So that's a, that's a good example of, of, of a real example of how I use that. That, that is awesome. And even, uh, it, it works at all levels, you know, uh, a very experienced person, they definitely want, uh, to keep, uh, the match well funneled into where they're at, but at the beginning levels, it really cuts down on confusion. If you are doing something that you actually know and you've experienced this past and you've done it a bunch of times, even as a new person, uh, you won't be as confused in, in the match, whether if you're playing around in their type of guard or, or trying to, if you're in, putting yourself in a weird situation, uh, the odds are that you, you might end up getting caught with something you had no idea that was around the corner. That, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, you know, when you start looking at this stuff, it, it, it should sound like common sense. And if it's 
sounds like common sense, then you're onto something, you know? And I, I believe that, uh, you know, game planning and putting yourself in positions of power, um, strong, strong positions, uh, is the way to go. I mean, sport jujitsu is, uh, uh, for, in, in, for most people, sport jujitsu is a, a sport of specialty positions. You know, you have guys that play half guard exclusively, like Lucas Lecce or Jake McKenzie. You have uh, closed guard specialists like Roger Gracie, uh, Hillary Williams, when she was competing. Uh, um, you, you, you have guys that have an amazing lapel guard, uh, of course, like Keenan. So uh, it's just, you know, you let these guys get into their game, uh, into their specialty position, and they're going to steal the match from you. Um, so that's you know, that's taking, taking the match where you know, that, that, that's game planning. That's going where you're strong. Um, that's, you know, it's maybe not so much funneling if it's a position you can jump to like close guard, for example, or half guard, but, um, you know, basically just put yourself in a position to win. So, um, that's a, that's a, a, another like phrase. I think I use a lot, you know, put yourself in a position to win. And if you're good at passing the guard, get on top, pass the guard, you know? So, you mentioned a couple times earlier that you referred to yourself as athletic or as non-athletic. Um, did, did you try to address? Have you ever tried to address this and try to become a more athletic person, or are you just mostly focused on technique and being the most technical uh, fighter or competitor that you could be? Um, I lifted weights when I was fighting, and I had good results with it. Um, but you know, the reality is, you can't make a slow person fast. You can make a slow person faster, but they're still slow. And um, there's certain, there's, you know, if I have a really low, low vertical, I can increase it a little bit, but there's just no physical way I could have a 40-inch vertical. Um, and uh, the strongest people that I grapple with, the absolute strongest people don't lift weights. And the guys that lift weights are pretty strong. But they lift all the time, and they're not near as strong as these guys that are naturally strong. Um, so I don't want to spend a bunch of energy and a bunch of my time trying to be an athlete. Uh, if you give me the option of doing some cardio and lifting weights and rolling, I'll just scratch the cardio and weights, and I'll just roll three times as much. Um, and I'm no Marcelo Garcia, you know. He 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 has that same mindset, but I think. Uh, you know, your time needs to be spent in your sport. And if I want to get stronger, I'll just hold the grips as hard as I can and uh, and develop better grips by just constantly pushing my grip to the max. And sometimes somebody breaks a grip and I just decide to let it go because I don't want to invest in it. You know, I don't want to invest that energy or maybe more often than not, I don't want my fingers to get broken um, when they break the grip. So, but if I'm trying to get stronger, then I'm just grabbing stronger. I'm, I'm committing to my squeeze more and developing um, my, you know, in jujitsu, I'm not very unathletic, you know, in the movements that I put all that time in. Um, but if you just watch me run down the street or something, you'd be <laughs> like, oh, yeah, wow. What a, you know, I'm a walking testament to what jujitsu can do for somebody. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I. So to answer your question, yeah, I did I did the right thing. I lifted weights. I did Tabatas. I had a fantastic coach. I got a lot stronger um, when I was lifting weights. And I, and I do know that lifting weights will make you stronger, and it's great recovery for you. But uh, I'm no longer trying to be the best MMA fighter that I am. I love jiu-jitsu, and uh, I just train jiu-jitsu. My, my gym is so competitive. When, when, 
And most of the time they're there. There's so many tough guys that I gym to roll with right now um, that I can roll as hard as I can with as many people as I can. And my body will give out before I get to everybody. You know, there's just, you know, on a, on a, on a, on a good night, there's just nowhere to run. There's just so many tough guys. And, and uh, I feel like, you know, if I did eight rounds and I wanted to do 10, but I could only do eight, well then I'll keep doing eight. And then, that's how I'll get the nine and get the 10, not by going and doing something else and then hoping that it translates to the mat. To try to process what you just said, uh, spending the maximum amount of time on the mat is where you want to spend your time and energy. That also will help develop your mat strength. But in somebody else's situation where they could get to class twice a week or three times a week, uh, it's, it's better to go lift weights or do other sort of training if other than sit on the couch and watch the ultimate fighter or do something like that. I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent because it Absolutely. does get you results, but it's not going to have uh, the, the better use of your time. If you can go to jujitsu is to go to do jujitsu with the mat. And yeah, uh, you're talking about having all these great people on the mat that are really good at jujitsu. I'm you know, remembering, uh, you know, the a few months back when I was there and, and Wes was just kicking my butt. I was having a good time uh, rolling with him and you and, and a handful of others as well. Yeah, yeah. Wes is awesome. He's really on the rise. I, 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 I truly believe in him, and I, and I hope, and I think that he has a legit chance of winning uh, Masters Worlds this year at uh, Brown Belt. So, um, Wes is awesome. Um, uh, you know, he moved to Little Rock to train full time, which is really cool. He used to live like two hours away. Um, but yeah, like back to your point, like if you could only train three days a week, then yeah, like get a good strength and conditioning program and, and supplement your training with that. But if me and you had a bet, like, hey, I'm going to take this 150-pound guy, and then you had a guy, let's say they were twins, and me and you both coached them, and we had a friendly bet that in six months, they were going to grapple each other, and we're going to see who wins, right? Well, if we have six sessions a week to get ready for that tournament, how many days a week are you going to have them do something other than actually drills and training? Yeah, it's going to be zero. None, right? Yeah. Zero, right? So you go, okay, but that's only six months. So if we're going to do it for a year, how many days are you going to do it? For me, it's still zero. Yeah. If, if I, I, I think that, you, that you're in, if you never lift weights and the, the month you get on a weight training routine, you could pretty quickly gain a significant amount of strength. But really, you're going to be doing that on the mat anyway. Uh, just if they're not a lazy person on the mat the entire time. Um, yeah, yeah, and I and and, I, and and don't get me wrong. I had great results with lifting weights, and I do believe that it's therapeutic for your body, and it's a great way to to, to push yourself. But um, part of the you definitely get stronger doing it. But a big part of the, your your boost in weights after a month is you're just learning the technique of the lift. You know, your body's like waking <laughs> up to the lift. Yeah. So you know, it's a it's a it's a little artificial um, to act because I got way strong fast. Because my the strength and conditioning program I was on was fantastic, and I do want to lift more. Um, because my body, you know, I'm at a point now where it's like, you know, I can't do eight rounds every single day. It's not, it's not in the cards for me. Not, not in my gym. It's not. I, I just can't do it. So I should be lifting weights, but um, I, I have a tough time motivating myself to do it. My personality just doesn't really enjoy picking up heavy things and putting them back down. Um, but I, 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 you know, everything I've said, it may sound like I'm a real bear on weightlifting. I'm, I'm not. Uh, just the realities are, you know, I'm not throwing my guys out of the gym to go lift weights. I'm telling them to get in the gym and roll yeah. and drill and focus on specific things and develop different areas of their games and whatnot. 
Yeah. And and that's one of the joys of jujitsu is that it is fun. And like you said, if if you found weightlifting to be a very enjoyable experience, which, you know, that would be great, but I can I I also can't find that joy in lifting weights. I'd be a lot stronger of a guy and then I could I could go do that for fun and go to jujitsu for fun and train hard at both of them and get a ton out of them. But uh, <laughs> a lot of us are here just because it's a blast, and it's a and it the social aspect of training and all that stuff is it's a lot of fun uh, to get on the mat and train with your buddies and to to work out hard. Really, you the, mentioned the, com- the camaraderie is what keeps us there. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned a little while ago that you had a hand injury, and and then a little bit after that, you mentioned about uh, wanting to protect your grips and, and wanting to. Um, you know, not get your fingers broken or get any injuries with your hands. Uh, how did you get your hand injury that you received, and is it affecting at all your ability to maintain a good grip? Uh, yeah, so I had a scapulonate um, tear, and there's a lot of deterioration in there, and I had that fixed. And I also had uh, what's called boxer's knuckle, not a boxer's fracture, but boxer's knuckle where the tendon on your knuckle is ripped um, from punching. And so um, I had the tendon repaired and the scaphalunate stitched back as best to their ability that they could. There wasn't a lot of tendon left just from years of uh, – or ligament, whatever it is, from years of just injuring it, I think, when I trained. Um, so my range of motion in my right wrist is really poor and I have to baby it sometimes or I might find it in a situation. I'll tell the guy, to, hey, break for a second. Let me get, I'll get my hand out of a precarious situation. Um, so uh, – I've dealt with it. It's not, it's not, it doesn't really inhibit me much. Um, but yeah, like, uh, like I have a really swollen knuckle on my left, my left hand ring finger is humongous right now. I don't even know what happened. It just blew up on me and it hurts so bad. And I see these guys with their horrible hands all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I want to minimize that or, you know, or, or, or put it off as long as possible. So one of the benefits of not having really strong grips is your fingers don't break. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, and, and if your grip strength, you know, if your grip strength is crazy strong, you know, the weak link is going to be a, a, one of those fingers is going to give. And so, uh, you look at these guys that have really, really strong grips and every one of their knuckles are just like way bigger than they should be. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's not like the injury really like it plays a huge role in that. I just... I uh, don't have a strong grip, and when I do keep a strong grip and I lose it, it hurts really, really bad. Like, the pain is pretty rough, and that's just – I can deal with the pain, but it just – the pain is letting me know that there's some stuff not so good for me going on in my fingers when that's happening. So, um, you know, that yeah. that's that sucks. That, that's part of – that's part of detraining that is really bad and hard on you is uh, those aggressive grip breaks. And that's how you have to break the grip, but it's hard on your hands. I get you, know, you get two hands, and you're going to be using those for the rest of your life. Like, <laughs> so, so why tear them up? My philosophy with grip breaks is, you know, I maintain uh, you know grips that I can. And when somebody looks like they're going to like kick out of a grip, or they're going to use their leg, or they're going to you know pull real hard, I just let go before they even do it. And it's yeah. you know not smart competitively, but if I'm going to be doing this in 20 years, I think it's definitely something that will help me uh, be able to maintain a, a better grip when I'm uh, older and uh, and and write with a pen if even pens exist or whatever. But just have good <laughs> hands in the in, when I get old, and and that's something that a lot yeah. of grapplers don't think about. They just oh yeah that that kind of hurt, and uh, I'm going to get stronger and better every time. 
but you know we are hand injuries i think might be hand and, and back and neck these things that kind of sneak up on you and you know when you're old you might be thinking you know i wish i didn't do so much of this uh while i was yeah. grappling because you know I, I think a guy who's going to submit me will submit me regardless of if he can break my grip easily or not and a guy who can't, yeah, my grip is gonna yeah. not. To me, it's I don't play the type of game where my grip is the deciding factor. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, there's there's levels to this, and um, and 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 you know, we're not world class grapplers, and we're not competing. I'm not and, anyway. And, you're you're far above I, me, really. Like, <laughs> no, man. Yeah, but I'm I'm far from world class, and and you know, I'm not I'm not counting on a match so that I can feed my family or to, you know, I'm scared I'll lose my sponsorship or something, you know, that none of that is a factor for me. So yeah, like I have to, I have to respect my body a lot more now, but I knew when I was fighting MMA that, you know, I was going to pay for a lot of that hard work and training and, uh, um, and I'm still okay with it. You know, I, I, have and, and, you know, there's, it's just, you just, everybody's different. You have to ask yourself, is the squeeze worth the juice? And, uh, um, I read a quote the other day with man, I, I like it so much. It said, you know, we either rust out or we wear out and I prefer to wear out. And it's kind of, you know, everything, there's a balance to everything. And I'm with you. If I feel like someone's about to break my grip, I'll let it go and transition to something else. Cause I don't want my hand to be blown out because of it. Um, or my, you know, to lose a knuckle or whatever. Uh, but you know, when it does happen, I don't beat myself up or the other person because I'm, I'm choosing to, to play this game and, and live my life this way. And I accept the consequences that come with it. I accept the fact that I might get really injured sometime on the mat. It could happen. And, um, but you know, I, I accept it, but yeah, I'm definitely like you. And I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find that balance. Really. Uh, when I had the pleasure of coming in there and training with you, I was really impressed by, uh, your gym. I, it was, it was a, it's a, it's a great facility there and, and a lot of great, quality training partners and, and coaches in there. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, and it's kind of like, I don't want to we do a whole podcast on this, but tell me a little bit of uh, what to um, maybe some lessons learned about uh, running a martial arts gym or a jujitsu gym. Um, yeah. Uh, Is that too big of a question? My, yeah, it's not, <laughs> you me, know, it's just like, put, you, you can pare it down if you want, but you know, my, there's, you know, the question is, as far as the gym, you know, is it is it uh, from a business standpoint or from a, a training standpoint? Because the two aren't always okay. Connected. L- let me read. Uh, I like my failed question because it, I really didn't have it very well organized, so I'll probably keep that in there. But it's just, it's just, I think it's just too big. Really, if I'm going to open up a gym in in a in a year or two, and and I'm talking to you, and I said, really, give me a cheat sheet on what to do right when I open my gym. What would be on the cheat sheet? You think? Yeah, I would. Uh, I would. I would have a limited schedule. People tend to train when you tell them to train, and uh, you kill yourself teaching a million classes a week. So have a limited schedule. I mean, give good options, but don't wear yourself out just trying to offer everything all the time. And then I would uh, suggest you know having you know two to three income revenue streams. So you know the fitness market is uh, an easy one that almost every gym has. They have some form of a kickboxing program, and these people aren't trying to fight glory. So you know it's a fitness kickboxing market. Um, so I would I would recommend to do that. Um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you're never going to sign 20, 30 people or 30 adults up doing jiu-jitsu a month. But the ones you do sign up, you have a really good opportunity and chance to keep them. 
So like my jiu-jitsu program has grown a ton. It still doesn't bring in the same income that kickboxing does, but it does, it does do really well for the gym, but you can count on it. These, I don't have the drop off that, that kickboxing does. Um, and then of course, uh, kids are the, the third piece of the pie. Um, so you have like uh, adult jujitsu, you have fitness kickboxing and then, uh, a kids program. So, um, stick to the kiss method. Don't abuse people, you know, don't, don't nickel and dime them, create a great service. And, and, and if you don't love teaching, then don't open a gym because you're going to spend a lot, lot of time and you're going to keep your students with how you coach them and how you interact with them. So uh, make sure it's what you really want to do. There's easier ways to make money. Um, and that's, that's where I would start with if I was telling somebody like a cheat sheet about a gym. It's easier now to open a gym than ever. You order mats online and you get an iPad, your billing services on your iPad. You don't even need a computer. You don't need paper. You don't have to go to the copy shop. You know, the waiver is digital. The contract is digital. The billing service is connected to your, your point of sale, uh, software that you're using on your iPad. And then you have mats and bam, you're in business. A couple of, you know, you have an iPad, so you're running ads on Facebook, Instagram, and Google. I mean, it's, there's never been an easier time to be in the service industry. And that being said, so there's more and more competition constantly opening up. So, um, and that could be, yeah. I see that as a win it's because a good thing. it exposes it more people to jujitsu and then the better exactly. places went out. That's exactly it, man. I, you know, there's a joke that my students say. It's, uh, the joke is they all end up at West Side eventually. And so <laughs> it's like a real compliment to me. Um, but, uh, it, it's been true to a large degree. And, uh, but I, I, I get along with the, uh, um, um, the other gyms around me. I have, uh, you know, Matt Smith, who's a Hanato Tavares affiliate. He used to train with me back in the day. He, he's got a good group of students there. And then we have some other gyms around that don't really like co-mingle in events and stuff like seminars or whatnot, but, uh, they, they, they have good things going as well. So, um, I feel like, you know, the rising tide, you know, raises all the ships and it don't get me wrong. It definitely helps to, to have the biggest and most established program when you have competition. But I, uh, I wouldn't really be that intimidated if a world champion opened up a little rock. I don't think it would make a big difference. I might lose two or three guys, but, uh, I think people are sticking around for the, for the bond and the camaraderie. And, uh, I think it'd be fine. You know, when I was younger, I didn't have that insight, but, uh, more competition. I agree. It's better. Yeah. And I, I like what you say about the, the world champion, you know, especially if the guy's kind of a jerk, you know, he might be great at jujitsu. If you can't teach it or your personality's off, uh, the people already like you. That's why they're training there and, and just picking up great jujitsu is a, a, a benefit is that as well. But, um, yeah, I think people, um, you should like your coach. You should like the, your team and, you know, and that will, if you don't, that I guess will lead you, lead you trying to find a be, uh, more happier, friendlier place. And hopefully the jitsu increases there as well. And, and that's, you got the best of both worlds there at Westside MMA. Yeah, thank you, man. I'm really happy with the, the gym in general. And um, I'm happy with it as a business. It's been good to me. And I'm happy with it as, uh, you know, like I have a girl that just won the boxing national tournament, you know, novice division, but she's a true novice. And she won, you know, ringside nationals. And she's won kickboxing and, uh, she's like five or six and one in MMA and she's at a ridiculously good brown belt, you know? And it's like, she's been with us for seven years and she's gotten 
good enough to beat specialists that are only doing one of the arts and she's doing them all. So, you know, I have a lot of pride and respect for, uh, my, you know, my gym and my other coaches at the gym, you know, especially my business partner, Matt, you know, he's a great kickboxing coach and he's a good jujitsu coach as well, but, um, he, he focuses more on the kickboxing and MMA stuff. Um, I, I'm really proud of it, man. So I appreciate the compliment. And I, I take it graciously. Yeah. And it definitely meant it. It was, uh, uh, a good time to get in there and, and to learn and to meet everybody and just to see the environment and the team that you're building over there. Yeah, man. I love it. I'm there all the time. If I had another job and I didn't get paid there, I'd still be there teaching. <laughs> that's, that's the way to do it. Uh, find that kind of enjoyment out of it and that the rewards that you get with your students as well. Well, really, I've kept you quite a while. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you want to say to the audience before I let you go? No, I no, I I enjoy doing these podcasts. I you know I like being asked questions. It makes me reflect on things differently, and uh, you know I hope I hope everybody enjoyed it. If they want to check out leg locks, you know I I feel like I take a really good fundamental approach to uh, how they work, and uh, so you know you can you can look up any of my apps and check them out. Uh, but there's a lot of good resources out there for leg locks as well. So I uh, you know buy any of them there's you know riley bodycomb is a fantastic coach and instructor so any of his resources are really good um i haven't personally seen josh hayden stuff but he's a very good leg locker um those are some guys that uh that i you know i can vouch for as far as being really good leg lock uh, uh practitioners and coaches and there's something to be said like for the apps you've developed that they're structured in a way that's meant to be learned versus if I go watch EBI or some, you know, amazing uh, leg lock in the competition and then I'm, uh, I'm trying to figure out what th- would happen there. Or maybe even that person shows a four minute video about how to do it and their entry is really impressive, but it's not really structured in a way that I could pick it up and, and run with it and make it into, put it into my funnel and, and get it to get it to really work for me. One, one compliment I would give myself is that I, you know, I don't ramble when I teach. It's just pretty clear, concise information um, at a fundamental level, and that's important. You know, we we have shorter and shorter attention spans, and um, you know, some details are not uh, paramount, you know, and some are. So you need the differential. You know, some people say you, you have to do it this way, and it's like no, like you don't have to do it that way. Um, I use the knee slide for example. You know, if you take 10 black belts, they're going to ten, they're going to show me how to do the knee slide and they're going to show you no 10 will do it exactly the same. Some will have the same side collar. Some will have cross collar. Some will do it with the Bravo series. Some will do it overhook with shoulder pressure. You know, there's, there's a, you know, some focus on driving the knee backwards. Some drive it out, some drive it up, but you know, there's, there's so many variables to the same move. So, um, when I coach, you know, I try to focus on the details that are important. And then if you want to, clap your hands with a gable grip or, you know, you don't, you know, you use your thumbs instead of not using your thumbs or you do the fancy Jean LaBelle grip or whatever. Um, you know, there's some other points that are much more important than how you exactly clap your hands together. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I try to focus on what's important. And then again, you know, always answer a question with the, with answer the question that's asked, but then also apply it to a fundamental and and that's like a good coaching tip or rule. So I, I try to do that. Man, I don't that, want to just answer your question. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. Want to, oh yeah, no. This is the answer. No, but this is the answer. But but why is it the answer? Answer that question, even though they didn't answer that. They didn't ask that question, and that 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 is a good coaching tip right there. 
Yeah. Really, how do I not get guillotined 10 times in a, every time I roll with somebody? You show me escape for guillotine, but also show me that I'm doing some pretty big things wrong with my posture, maybe, or, or find that's something That's a perfect a analogy. Per- <laughs> yeah, perfect analogy, brother. That, that's exactly right. Like, I can show you the escape, but if you're escaping guillotines, there's a, there's a fundamental problem if you're constantly being put in a situation where you have to fight the hands and get your head out. So, um, yeah, show them what they need for the immediate result because you're not going to fix their posture overnight, but then help them stay out of guillotines. That's the real answer. And what's neat about that is, man, I teach very few escapes in my gym, and uh, uh, I, I focus a lot on positioning and posture. And I believe that if you show uh, three different triangle sh- uh, escapes often, your students will be in more triangles than they should be. So <laughs> that's my that's my take on that. That kind of goes back to that beginning question you had about coaching and stuff. But I don't do a ton of escapes. Of course, I know they're important. Somebody's going to listen to me say that. And they're going to, you know, armchair quarterback me on that. But um, if you think about it, man, you do a lot of escapes and you're going to see your students ending up in the situations they need to escape from. And uh, that's not so good. So. Yeah, that's from kind of my take on it. That, that perspective, if you're showing, you spend an hour showing escape from triangle, or you spend an hour showing a guard pass, and and you make it to where the triangle can't really present itself, it won't be an issue. Uh, you know, it is important to have those escapes. But I, you know, I always think about side control. You, you get somebody in side control and you can't escape, they're going to be throwing all kinds of different stuff at you, and and you you might end up getting confused. But if you can escape the side control pretty quickly. You don't have to worry about escaping an arm bar, escaping all these different chokes that, that that they might pull off on you. Just escape the position right off the bat or don't end up in that situation like with a triangle. Just pass in a way that you don't end up getting triangled and it's easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the reality is for sport grappling, you know, don't get your guard passed. That's the, <laughs> that's the you know, I know it's yeah. easier said than done. But, you know, if you get your guard passed, you're going to have a tough time because they can grab your pants, they can hold, you know, you're wearing these all these handles. It's really hard to recover uh, in a tournament setting once you get your guard passed. Um, so, of course, you need to know how to escape the guard. But really, like the real secret is developing a nasty guard. There you go. And which I, also, I haven't done. <laughs> I think I believe you have. I also wrote down um, uh, just as. Uh, telling you might as well you said um you know i could give myself a compliment about something i'm going to ask that question to more people because uh, i didn't ask you that question but you kind of said it and it it resulted in an interesting uh, thing you know like so i'll ask somebody you know if you can give yourself a compliment about your coaching or about your grappling or whatever uh, what would that be and it really it's hard to comfort yourself sometimes and it really i think will find uh interesting answers of what people come up with you know, and that's a societal thing. Um, I'm, I'm going to go off the deep end on this one. But, you know, people – one thing that annoys me is false modesty. If I said like um, – uh, trying to give an example. Like Jake's wife is like awesome with kettlebells. And yeah. I was like, dude, you are like – you are like – I know that's not easy to be on top of that game. Like I know you have to push yourself. Like that's legit that you're that – mentally tough and she's like oh heck i don't know you know i you know and she just says some bs to kind of like play it down like that's annoying no say thank you i appreciate the compliment like accept like part of manhood is accepting compliments and um i think it's uh you know if so like when you compliment at my gym like i don't say well you know we're doing the best we can you know i'm just we're just down no like i'm proud of it i i i, I am you know, my head is held high when we go to tournaments. I'm, I'm confident and I take the compliments well. Uh, so I think it's kind of weird that like 
people are scared to compliment themselves or, 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 you know, um, accept compliments and it shouldn't be. I think, I think that that's just like a weird thing that we, that we do. Uh, I don't know if it's a cultural thing or just a, what the deal is, but I agree with you. Yeah. Make people come, you know, or yeah, make people do that. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. I think, and when I do it, um, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging about anything, and but it also takes me down to the point where it acts like I, uh, like I don't know how to receive a compliment, and I don't want to be in that area either. And when you compliment somebody and they accept it and, and thank you uh, for noticing that, or just thank you, just whatever, it it is. This person gets complimented quite a bit. They're a professional at dealing with that, you know, and and it's just something that they're used to, and they're dealing with, and. and there's a reason why. I don't know. It, it just shows a confidence, but not uh, a cockiness that I think most people want to avoid uh, when you're able yeah, to accept exactly. that properly. And uh, that's something that I, I I would like to work on, but uh, <laughs> I guess I should. And uh, yeah, so and that, interesting point there. And, and I always appreciate the kind of the off the mat uh, topics when they kind of go this way as well. Yeah, me as well. I, that, that's That's probably my favorite part is how we can make an analogy or something. You know, there's, there's so many patterns in life that are just true everywhere. And, uh, you know, so many, so many of my analogies, um, you know, the common one is talk about building like a good base or a good foundation. You talk about building a house and, you know, you, you, the, the first thing is the foundation. It doesn't matter like how pretty the windows are. They're going to crack if the foundation gives out. So, um, you, you have these like analogies and you start talking about jujitsu and then, uh, you realize like you're, you're, you're reaffirming or still learning things about life through jujitsu. There's, there's a lot of similarities there. So I, I actually really enjoy, uh, that aspect as well. You know, when you're reading about, uh, chess, for example, and, and you start listening to the strategy and, and you start thinking about jujitsu, you're know, like, it's the same thing. That's amazing. You know, I, I love making those connections. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, uh, both of the names of the competitors of a, a particular, uh, grudge that there was back. I, I think Gary Kasparov was one of them, but when he was younger, he was competing against a, somebody who was way higher ranked in chess and, and was just uh, going to beat him. And they play, I don't know, they play best out of seven or best out of something like that. And he he had lost all his matches so far, and, and he was just one match away from losing the whole game. And he decided to not try to win, but to try to get a draw. And he was confident if he played defensively, he can get a draw. And they played like a ton of games. Like this went on for months and months. And he would play another game and he would get a draw. And they played another game. And he just wore the guy out. And like the idea that the strategy in chess goes beyond just the immediate match that you're playing, but also like a long term strategy of I'm going to wear this guy out and I'm going to get him to break eventually. But uh, I don't know a whole lot about chess history, but I learned that, and I thought that was pretty uh, neat fact as far as how uh, one of the greatest chess players uh, kind of got his name on scene just by wearing somebody out and, and getting a whole bunch of draws and draw, and they would keep playing over and over again, and he eventually got the guy to lose. <laughs> That's awesome. That's how Mark <laughs> Schultz uh, uh, started covering the distance between him and his brother. Um, he could never score on his brother, so he finally decided he just wasn't going to let him score on him. <laughs> and, um, and and all of a sudden, he built up a really good defense, and then out of that defense, he was able to eventually, you know, one day score a point or two points, and you know, it goes from there. So uh, it was another um, another example of that that same kind of strategy. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, really. I've had a pleasure talking with you. We'll get you back on uh, way quicker than last time. <laughs> I always yeah, have a good man. time talking to you, Rolly. 
yeah, this really, this really uh, was nice, and uh, I appreciate it, and I'll uh, look forward to seeing it come out, bud. I want to thank Rolly Delgado for the interview. It's always a pleasure to have him on the show. He's such an insightful person about jujitsu and many other things, and I uh, just really, uh, I didn't realize that long had, of time had passed since we've had him on the show, so we won't let that much time pass until we get him back on again, but uh, he's always a fun person to get on the podcast. Uh, Gary, I think it is time for the article of the week. We have a past guest uh, that wrote this article, and I'm, you know, I'm always kind of keeping an eye on past guests. But uh, Mark Mullen writes a lot of articles, and I just, you know, this is one that he wrote in February of this year, and so it's not super old, but he's probably written several since that. But it's kind of a fun thing, and we want to make sure that we're not violating. Uh, much of these things that he talks about today. His article is on jujitsutimes.com. Three types of students instructors can't stand. Gary, here we well, go. Well, I would say one would be Gary, two would be Byron. Yeah. And I don't know about a third, but I, I think uh, we're probably in there. We, we, you know, I am guilty and stay tuned towards the end of the article. Uh, that last category you could fit me into occasionally um, that, but that just goes with my age <laughs> um, so basically he's not trying to this isn't a like a total list of all the things that instructors get bothered by but these are three things that definitely could annoy an instructor as far as you know what's you have to look at what is the instructor's goal to teach a class uh, to help the students learn jiu-jitsu uh, most instructors want it to be a uh, enjoyable process. I mean, it is a if you look at it like a like a business, which most schools are run like a business. You want to have customers, and those would be your students. You want them to have fun, and you also want them to get something out of it, and that would be jujitsu and uh, the relationships of the people that they meet and and bond with on the mat. And there's a lot of things to get out of it, but one of them is definitely learning jujitsu. And some these things might kind of inhibit the student from actually learning the jiu-jitsu that the instructor is trying to teach. The first one is the resistor. And it's just simply a person who doesn't let the other training partner try the technique at an appropriate level. So Gary and I are brand new to jiu-jitsu. And here he goes. Gary is going to try to do the rear naked choke. So we're going to watch the instructor do it. Uh, we pair off. And all right, I get Gary. That guy smells nice. And uh, he gets... <laughs> He, he he starts off with his hooks already in, and my chin is now I'm putting my chin down and kind of gluing it to my chest, and my hands are defending, and and he doesn't even know how to do this for a naked choke, but I know I don't want him under my chin, and so five minutes goes by, he's yet to even lock it up with the with the proper grip, and you know okay we should switch, now I do it, and of course uh, you know Gary or may or may not do it to me, but really the point is not to resist. Gary at full strength while he's learning the technique. I always like to kind of ramp it up a little bit, give him a little resistance, but when the first exposure to, to, to the technique or when they're trying to pick up a detail or maybe get some reps in, minimal uh, resistance is pretty good. You know, let them do that. Let them feel what it feels like to do it correctly. And then uh, a little bit of resistance, depending on what your instructor wants, is okay, but don't just fight him tooth and nail while you're training. You know, and I don't think it's just the instructor that hates that also. I've been 
partnered up with resistors before trying to you know work a technique and uh, it's not fun but the best part of this is when mark describes the resistor and he says uh resist with full power and thrash on the mat like a salmon on the dock actually thought that was kind of funny talking about a salmon thrashing <laughs> on the dock you always like uh things with animals you know wounded yep. cougar and that sort of thing yeah uh, yeah Liger. You know, salmon. Yep, ligers. You know, so I got to like those animals. Um, speaking of animals, uh, we've got a, a four-legged dog type was the second one. The YouTube hot dog um, is his second uh, type of person people hate. And uh, this person is the guy who does not know the basics, may not know how to do a paintbrush, may not know how to do a, a Kimura, uh, doesn't know how to do a basic hip, hip escape, doesn't know how to, uh, you know, shrimp. But this person, you know, watched Keenan Cornelius and, and now wants to, you know, learn the newest technique, the invisible ninja lapel guard, and basically thinks, boy, this is the missing piece of my game. If I could just learn this, oh boy, I'd be the best there is because look at Keenan Cornelius. He's the best there is. So this is the person who just watches YouTube. Uh, you just spent a week just working on basic Kimuras. Uh, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, your instructor was just working on Kimuras from side mount, you know, going very slow for the class, you know, really working on all the techniques. And this guy goes home every night and, you know, checks out Keenan Cornelius, checks out, you know, Buchecha and just looking for the newest, craziest, high level technique and, uh, doesn't want to learn the basics comes into the next class and you know wants to learn a double reverse barambola to flying triangle and uh basically uh that is a thorn in the side for the instructor is it because they're worried that, that the student's going to be getting too advanced too quickly why is that a thorn in the side gary what would you guess well i don't think they are a student getting too good too quickly it's they are not going to have the techniques down i mean like you were just saying earlier uh you know preface before we started this uh talking about the resistor and the hot dog here you were talking about you know the job of an instructor is to teach jujitsu and basically you know jujitsu is a chain of progression you're, you're not going to start at the top and work your way backwards to have a very good jujitsu game you need the basics down that's why we have basics and if you skip those and you go to you know all these crazy moves you, you are not going to have a complete game you're going to have a, a hodgepodge game that has so many holes in it that uh you know the local uh um housing inspector will will condemn your game because there's so many holes in it so you definitely want to make sure you uh have you know the basics down and uh and that's why he's a thorn inside for the instructor there you go uh this last one and and like our friend Mark is making on this list, this isn't a total list of things. And if you are kind of guilty occasionally, so if you're a white belt and you watch a couple of YouTube videos that are kind of just fun, just take those in and stride and enjoy. I mean, it's part of it. Jiu Jitsu is at this time in our lives is there's cool stuff online all the time, but come in and do what their instructor is teaching you. And it's going to be a, a huge benefit. And same thing on this last one, clueless in class. So the instructor is teaching a technique and everyone's watching and you go pair off and it's like, uh, I don't know what I'm doing here. And so the instructor comes by, you, you're clueless as far as the technique you're even working on and how to do it correctly and all the details and all the stuff that uh, he or she was telling you about are just gone. 
And so try to pay attention. And this is the one that I occasionally, I'll get back in the, you know, partnered up with somebody. And I'll be like, <laughs> uh, okay, this hand goes over here. And then it's not like I forgot the whole thing. But sometimes I need like a little bit more of a primer than probably the average person to kind of get this this uh, uh, brick driving down the street. And <laughs> and so, you know, I, I try to partner up with people who have, you know, good memories. I'm getting old, Gary, and sometimes my memory will fade. I feel like we've had the conversation like this a little bit earlier, but I can't remember. No, we didn't. Okay, good. Uh, it must have been somebody else I was talking to uh, over Skype. Just take that active listening and paying attention while your instructor's teaching the technique. And it just shows, it's like a, a, a bit of respect as, as far as, like, I, you know, if the best jujitsu person in the world is showing a technique live in front of you right now, would you pay attention? I would think so. I would think you'd be, like, glued to that. Like, oh, here we go. This are some details that I really need, and this is really going to be great. But, you know, so if you kind of zone out while your instructor's telling you something and you just kind of are just there you know, looking around and seeing, you know, oh, man, he didn't wash his gi. I'm not going to roll with that guy. This guy, look at Gary. Man, he needs a haircut. All this type of thing. And it comes time to actually do it. You haven't paid attention at all. That's not really, like, the nicest thing as an instructor to see as far as, uh, you know, dedication of the students and just, you know, respect to the lesson at hand. Yeah, um, you know, the, like Byron said, the, the key is pay attention. We are going to forget, like Byron said, uh, you know, sometimes he's paid attention and he gets out there and he totally forgets where's my hand go, you know, this and that. But so in that situation, too, you know, just because Mark put this in there, he's not saying don't be afraid to ask a question. You know, am I doing this right? Or, you know, where does my hand go? Because we are going to miss some stuff. And one thing I like that instructors do, especially if it's a thing he's doing with his hand or his leg and you can only really see it from one side. You know, I like it when, you know, we're all standing in a circle around the instructor, instructor showing somebody. He's like, hey, everybody come over here so you can see where my hand is. And and you can only really see it from one side. I've always liked it when instructors do that because that's, you know, sometimes you can miss that if you're you're not in the right spot. But, um, you know, definitely pay attention. But if for some reason you and your partner go back and, and you guys both have no clue, okay, what do I do on step two or what do I do now? You know, don't be afraid to ask a question, but, you know, make sure you were paying attention and, you know, not just uh, lollygagging or, uh, you know, like I've talked about before, pulling a Byron. You want to make sure you're not doing any of that stuff. And, uh, you know, and it's respect for your for your instructor. Uh, you know, the, your instructor put a lot of time in into his uh, class and, uh, you know, definitely uh, he's trying to teach you something. So uh, pay attention and uh, it's going to work better for everybody. There we go. Gary, uh, one little tip on this one because it's, I have been the kind of the idiot that uh, will get back and like, okay, how does – which leg goes over here and, and, and how do I move my hips like that? It's just look around the room and you'll learn who to look at and who not to look at as far as the students who could kind of uh, remember and pick things up a little easier. And, and there's examples going on all around you and uh, use that. You, you know, I'd like to add another one in here. You know, I always hate the guy that the instructor shows something, and then as you go back to to work on that, you're 
partner wants to work something totally else, you know, a total different move. And, uh, you know, I was at a seminar once and, uh, you know, a really high level uh, black belt who's a very high level wrestler was teaching a takedown. And uh, when we went back to uh, drill it, uh, my partner wanted to do something else, you know, said that takedown doesn't work. (laughs) And I was embarrassed. I was like, man, no, no, I am not going to let this guy think that I'm, uh, you know, no more than him and this and that. I was like, nope, I'm working exactly what he showed. And uh, so that one always bugs me. And I've seen that happen more than once. And it seems like uh, every now and then I get partnered with somebody like that. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I've had uh, this one particular partner who, you know, we learn a technique. We, we go, we start training it. And he's like, it's not going to uh, work. And I'm saying, yeah, this is a good technique. And then, of course, you know, Gary's like, yeah, it's not going to work. And but the instructor comes by, and uh, this particular partner, who I'm not going to tell you who it is, it always is like, I could get out of this. And then uh, the instructor will, will put that put Gary in the in the move and uh, choke him unconscious every time. And uh, regardless of whether there's a choke or not, it's really amazing. So, you know, don't pull a Gary. <laughs> <laughs> That was a kind of a fun article uh, written by our friend Mark Mullen. He's been on the podcast before. I hope to get him on the show sometime again. And uh, he's always writing uh, neat articles. So check him out there at jujitsutimes.com. This is Corbett's Kids with Corbett Miller. Corbett is a black belt under Sanji and Solo Ibero. He runs an academy with over 250 kids doing jujitsu. His kids' competition team is successful on multiple levels. And now he answers your questions about kids and jujitsu. Any kids' program is going to occasionally deal with uh, kids who are just challenging. How do you deal with those students? Well, I think it's it's really like it's it's either you take care of it beforehand, prophylactically. You have systems in place to make sure that you try to, to screen those kids. Or you have to deal with it reactively when the kids are already in your, your program and they're causing trouble. Um, now, having my school for 20 years and teaching literally thousands of students, um, I've, I've had the occasional student get into our program that shouldn't be in our program. And, and, and again, I'll just – my school is a place – life skills are always first. I mean the technical part of jiu-jitsu training and all those things are, are secondary. It really is with kids. I, I, I could care less in reality. I mean, you know, I've, I've got students, I could probably start a small, like, uh, samurai army with all of our, our Naga swords that we've earned over the years. But what's more important is I want to produce really great, great students, um, you know, in terms of who they are as a person. So, um, and part of that is making sure that we're the right environment for that child. So, and again, the acid, the litmus test that I use, whether that's when I'm pre screening a student, or whether they're in my program, is are they slowing down the rest of the class? And again, I, I know how it works, when, especially when schools have small enrollments with their youth program. It's like every student counts. But sometimes a student whose needs are not being addressed because they're being in a group class, really, they're costing you. They're not, they're not, they're not, they're costing you tuition, not paying you tuition because they're taking away from the vibe. They're taking away from the energy. They're taking away from just the positive uh, energy in the class. 
So what do you do? Um, I think there's another, that's another reason why every, every jujitsu school, in my opinion, needs to do an introductory lesson. That way you can screen to see if, if a student has special needs, if they're, you know, somewhere on the Asperger syndrome, uh, spectrum where it's like, you know, you, you might not be able to have them in your program and, and not be able to follow along and, you know, need one-on-one attention. That is really not fair to them but it's not fair to the other students in your program as well. So whether that's having them in a one-on-one situation with one of the instructors or just saying this is not the right place for them, I think is something that every school owner has to do. And I think that's, it's unfortunate, but um, that's, that's one way. So again, being proactive, trying to find out like in an introductory lesson, if the kid just cannot pay attention, if they're disruptive in the introductory lesson, if they're just, you know, um, being inappropriate, I think, you know, you're going to be able to see that. And then you just romance the family out the door in a way that you're saying, you know, this might not be the best place for Johnny. It just seems like, you know, this group setting would be really disruptive for him and he wouldn't be able to get as much out of the program as if he was doing a private class or doing some other activity. There's nothing wrong with saying that to someone. And some people might push back and say, ah, he's ready, but you as, as the, the professor or the coach has to be able to say that to someone and really mean it. The other way is, again, now <laughs> I don't want your listeners to go out and like get rid of like half their enrollment because they're not you know, listening appropriately. I think it's also, <laughs> it's also a conversation about how are you managing your mat? You know, it's, is it fun and exciting? You're, you're always managing with what I call an energy curve. You know, the energy curve has to be high. It's got to be fun. It's got to be positive, but it can't be out of control. You know, you, they want, you want the kids to have fun and not act funny, but it's got to be something where it's, 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 you know, taking energy breaks, not spending too long on one technique, using mat management strategies like teaching on command, which will change your floor, guaranteed. Um, those sort of things are what you should be doing in order to be able to, you know, again, we're pursuing this idea of being a master coach. Uh, to be able to do that, you need to have tools. And again, I think there's ways of doing that, examining, you know, are you punishing kids? I'm not big on doling out like punishment. I'm just not that way. Um, you know, it's a simple thing like reverse teaching. Like if kids are sitting, like, you know, listening to a, te- uh, you explain a technique and, you know, half of them are like scratching their, their heads and looking around. Don't pick out all the kids that are like, you know, um, scratching their head or picking their nose. Pick out the kid that's like sitting up straight and listening and say, Johnny, look at Johnny. Look at how straight his back is. Look at how he's focusing like a black belt. Let's give Johnny three claps. Clap, clap, clap. You look back around and all the other kids are sitting up straight and the parents that are watching think you're a Jedi. (laughs) I like that. Um, Avoiding the punishment aspect of it and and trying to reward the the good behavior. I'll I'll tell you this. If you're into punishment, you're never going to be able to build your program. (laughs) You know, it's just like... I mean, some people might, but it's like, you know, um, we, the Cobra Kai dojo didn't work out, you know, 25 <laughs> years ago, and it's not going to work. I mean, the, not the jiu-jitsu. Mark Lehman's awesome. But, like, uh, what I'm saying is yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the old school. Right? The karate kid. <laughs> the karate kid guy. Yeah, we don't, we don't do that. So, yeah, that's great. That's funny. You got you to gotta cover the uh, actual Cobra Kai <laughs> yeah, at, uh, in jiu-jitsu world, you know. But people had to know that part of the community, right? <laughs> This has been Corbett's Kids. If you have a question for Corbett's Kids, please send it to bjjbrick at gmail.com and we will pass it along. If you have an academy 
and want a stronger kids program, please check out kidsbjjrevolution.com. You will find drills, curriculum, marketing advice, and much, much more to support your kids program. Uh, Gary, good news, man. Yes. What's the good news? Well, you know, we like to have a Matt Tales. We don't have a Matt Tales this week. Uh, we need people to send in their funny or interesting or amazing stories uh, to bjjbrick.com. Or the website is bjbrick.com. The email would be bjjbrick at gmail.com. And uh, we'll make a Matt Tales out of that thing. And it'll be really kind of a fun thing to share with everybody. It's kind of a weird or quirky or, you know, odd story that happened to you. And we may leave them pretty anonymous. Uh, Gary's kind of outed a few people here and there, but nobody seemed to mind. But uh, during the actual Matt Tales, uh, I don't use you know much for real names or anything like that. Anyway, but just share your fun stories, bjbrick at gmail.com. We'll make Matt Tales out of them. We need more because I was looking at last year compared to this year. We had more for last year in a shorter amount of time than we have for this year so far. And uh, we'd like to get to making those again. But the good news for Gary, it, you know, if we don't have a Matt Tales, Gary has an audio book that he likes to talk about or does not like to talk about or awkwardly talk about. But there's no audio book this, this week, Gary. Oh, yes. Why, Byron? Because Why are Gary we not having an audio book? would like to talk about his website that he has coming out. Man, Gary, I can't believe it. You go from making, you know, a hundred or so audio books. Now you're going to make a website. And this is going to be great. Gary, your website is called BJJ Hammer. Hitting the nail on the head or hitting the head of the nail with the, you got to hit the nail. And that's an odd tagline for a website, but that's what you got going on. Yeah, you know, uh, it's something I've been working on for a long time. Um, you know, if you've ever rolled with me, you'll notice I have a tough time. And y- you guys know how I normally only roll nogi. And a big reason for it is, you know, my 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 digits, my phalanges, <laughs> um, they are destroyed. And the reason they're destroyed is because I miss the nail with a hammer. I've hit all my fingers, you know, my phalanges on both sides, all 10 of them. And uh, so I've had to learn to, to play jiu-jitsu without grips. Um, so that's kind of big why I have got into uh, the nogi uh, section of jiu-jitsu. And really that's what we're going to go, this is, website's going to be about. It's going to have, you know, a lot of techniques like the armless and handless guillotine. Um, you're going to learn stuff like that, uh, otherwise known, you know, in the eastern United States as the invisible guillotine. So, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of great moves you're going to learn. Um, so it's just something I think that was lacking out there in the community, and uh, I think it'll uh, really take off. So most people have, or some people, definitely not most, have kind of messed up their hands and their fingers doing jujitsu, holding on to these grips and while people kick out of them, and, and it kind of damages their hands and fingers. Uh, that's not the case for you. You've damaged your hands with a hammer over kind of many like, years of construction work. Is that right, Gary? Yeah, yep. You know, uh, construction. I've been building, you know, houses brick by brick. Yeah. You know, uh, from the, you know, making the frame really strong. <sighs> Hammering those bricks. <laughs> G- Gary, you, know, yeah. the- you got to hammer those bricks <laughs> into place, Pirate. Uh all kinds of construction. So we got we have BJJ brick, BJJ hammer. Uh, what's going to be next? I don't know. Some other type of uh, way to build a, a house. BJJ screw. 
Byron, I, I think that's uh, you shouldn't be talking about that. That's uh, you know, this is not an X-rated you can't show. Hammer but, everything. Oh, whoops. Yeah, we're not talking about yeah, you know because I, <laughs> I know you were talking about that one, and uh, you know the chapter one was uh, I, I got your back literally. <laughs> that was chapter one of BJJ Screw. <laughs> literally, Gary. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Okay, uh, yeah, that that domain name. So BTJ Hammer is open, and I assume Gary's going to hop on that pretty soon. But if not, it's open for anybody listening to the podcast. Uh, I think BJJ I'm, Players would be great. I mean, it's a strong grip. That's one thing, uh, you know. Well, I mean, most of us jiu-jitsu guys have strong grips and wrestlers. Byron had a strong grip, you know, one-handed before he started this sport. But, um, you know, it's a strong grip is really important. Yeah, BJJ Player is available. Uh, Byron, that goes back to uh, BJJ Screw. <laughs> Dang. Well, BJJ Players is uh, not dot com is not available anymore. I don't know who else has that. But uh, BJJ Hammer, I'm not even going to type in BJJ Screw because evidently uh, that is offensive to Gary. And I just I don't know what he's talking about. You know, you hammer in a nail or you can screw in a screw. Uh, they're both find ways to do construction and i know you only want to use the screw to put it in a door because the the doornail gary is dead yep lefty lucy righty tidy bjj lefty lucy well, we could we could go uh, bjj mount <laughs> that one's probably taken i'm not gonna type that one i'm gonna guess that's taken but uh yeah this has been an interesting thing gary I look forward to you and watching you on your website endeavors with bjjhammer.com uh, look, you know, it's going to be great, man. Yeah, we, I, I'm trying to get it out just in time for the buy-in season of uh, Halloween. You know, Halloween's a great time to come out with websites. So uh, hopefully uh, I should have a out by Halloween 2021. You know what time that is? Uh, September. Hammer time. <laughs> <That sucks. laughs> you got to put that music in. <laughs> Uh, insert music <laughs> Gary did you ever have the hammer pants I never had hammer pants but you know I think maybe we should get some okay yeah hammer style key pants yeah we could uh, definitely uh, in gold Gary can't do hammer shorts because it, it, they just ride up on him and nobody wants to see that happen because it kind of looks like a skirt things get exposed you know, yeah as he ages things back. hang lower than they used to <laughs> There you go back with that one there, Byron. <laughs> Man, Burning this is – yeah, usually you're the one taking it uh, kind of south on the on the comedy or humor, and it's me today, Gary. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Byron's really, uh, you know, just plugging away at that backside. <laughs> All right, my friends. We've had a great time this week on the show. That wraps up Gary's website. If you want to uh, kind of keep up with us, uh, our Facebook page – is going to be facebook.com slash BJJ Brick or also on Twitter. YouTube is where I'm spending. So I spend most, or we spend most of our time and energy on the podcast. Uh, set, close second place would be the YouTube channel. We're trying to get that to grow. Reviewing DVDs and, and products, and you'll find links to all the interviews on our web uh, YouTube page as well. So we're kind of growing our YouTube channel. It's uh, still pretty small compared to the web, compared to the podcast, but it's been fun and uh, hoping to get more and more videos up soon. 
Also, check out our link to uh, Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a is a website for content producers like ourselves, and it's a, a avenue for you to uh, uh, show your support uh, to BJJ Brick and uh, donate money uh, per episode. Um, so definitely check it out. We have a, a slew of Patreon supporters that uh, we couldn't keep the show going without them. So uh, we'd like to thank each and every one of our Patreon supporters. Yeah. Um, also, um, tell your friends about us. Tell your friends not just about the podcast, but about the, uh, uh, as Byron was saying, the social media, the YouTube page, the, B- uh, the Facebook page, and uh, let them all know about uh, BJG Brick on the interwebs. Uh, we, uh, you know, the interwebs are a great place to, to get our word out, and uh, we'd appreciate it if uh, you, you let your friends know. Yeah, and uh, tell your friend about uh, Gary's project, BJJHammer.com, and uh, let's get that off going strong, right, Gary? Yeah, definitely. We want to get BJJ Hammer going great, so it'll be out by uh, Halloween uh, 2021. Our luck, uh, some other website will take some other somebody else take it over, and it'll be something not just related at all. And it'll be uh, people go to it and see what we're talking about, and it's going to be bad. And then of course, well, Gary's associated with that. Yes. Yeah. you know the bad thing is though. I was telling my parents about uh, BJJ Hammer, and uh, they couldn't wait to check out my website. The bad part is they left out one of the J's, <laughs> and uh, they were really embarrassed when they saw my website. <laughs> so make sure you spell it right. Oh, thanks, Gary. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I think you've trumped anything that I've said so far. <laughs> <laughs> as I uh. really derail this train, um, as always uh, – Byron's, uh, you know, just a uh, two stripe purple at derailing trains, but uh, I think I'm uh, way over the top. So um, finally, uh, if you are happen to head through the Midwest, through uh, Kansas, uh, we're in the middle of Kansas, so South Central Kansas, Wichita, Kansas, <laughs> send us a line, bjgbrick at gmail.com. We'd love to get on the mat and uh, share some time with you. Yep. Put down the hammers and stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to hit the nail with a hammer. On the head of the nail. Hammer nail. Hammerhead. Shark. <laughs> uh, great white shark. Word association, Gary. Go ahead. You're next. Swordfish. Sword fight. Cock fight. <laughs> Gary saying cock on the podcast. BJJ Hammer. <laughs> BJ Hammer. Ah, <laughs> oh, Byron, this is too good. <laughs> okay, well, tell it right there. <laughs> we should end every show with a word association and see how many words we get in before it totally derails. Uh, we keep it the podcast clean, but oftentimes it's like that, that clean humor that uh, is kind of not that clean. You know, if the kids in the car, they don't get it. You know what I mean, Gary? Yep. We'd like to uh, uh, thank our sponsors, Spick and Span, for always keeping stuff clean. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm putting that in there. That was funny. We should do word association at the end. I like it. That was funny. <laughs> I guess it got me off guard, so I started laughing. <laughs> That's okay. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs>